Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, September the 21st, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So you're all excited about a Braves win, but you think the Braves win is going to be combined with a Mets, Mets loss. loss. And the Mets hit a grand slam of the seventh inning, I think, of the sixth inning. I had a and, reason uh, to went be ahead seven to four. encouraged because the, when I'm uh, listening on the radio and watching on TV, uh, the commentators are like, uh, the Mets were actually losing, I think, for nothing for a while. So you were looking like you were heading toward a victory as a Braves fan, and the Mets were heading toward a loss. And then, yes, somewhere later in the game, uh, Chip Carey on TV goes, bad news for Milwaukee. This team looks like <laughs> the Mets hit a it grand can't slam. get itself. I mean, it's not hitting the ball well at all right now. I mean, it's struggling to hit the ball. I think they had three runs last night, two and a homer. Uh, the starting pitcher for the Nationals. Nationals going to lose 100 games. So they don't have much of a starting staff anyway. Starter, starter gets hurt first inning. And I think it they was bring two home some, runs, by the way. One single and, and uh, one one run home yeah. run and one uh, But I went to bed, it was run. two to nothing. When I, or two yeah. to one when I went to bed. Um, they did a two-run homer, but that was about it. I mean, this team is just, I, I hate to say this, but, but it looks to me like they could have peaked much earlier than we hoped they did. Um, we shall see. I mean, it'll, it'll work itself out over the last couple of weeks. Um, I told you yesterday that I felt the Braves needed to pick up a game on the Mets in these three games. They're playing the lowly Nationals. The Mets are on the road playing Milwaukee. Pretty good baseball team. Not a great team, but a pretty good team. Um, and then the Braves have a Thursday. They play tomorrow. The Mets do not. So there's an opportunity for the Braves to make up a half game or lose a half game. They're dead even in the loss column. But I really felt that um, that going into these three games – the Braves had to pick up a game. Up until now, they have not. Not now, to their credit, there's nothing they can do about the Mets. I mean, there's not one single thing you can do about yeah, whether they, the Mets win they, they or, or lose. So far. Well, I mean, that, yeah, but, but here's the problem. They're not hitting, and the bullpen, the closer, appears to be real, real shaky. I mean, I did see the line score this morning where he gave up two hits and a walk. And, um, he made it. And, I watched and, to the end, and he, uh, he in one inning made it an exciting and ending. And I'm telling again. you, you don't win a world championship unless you've got a solid closer. And they just don't look like they're clicking on all eight cylinders. They just look like, well, I mean, obviously, when Olsen's as struggling as he is, um, the middle of the lineup, you got to have somebody in that three and four hole, you know, hitting the ball, and they just they're struggling. But I want <laughs> it seemed it seemed to me, and this is interesting, and it's probably true, but Ozzy Albies came back for two games before he got hurt again. And, of course, he started performing right right off the, the bat, so to speak. Uh, Acuna played better those two games than he has for quite a while. I mean, he hit a home run, I think, and yeah. and actually performed a little, had some offense. and He's a head case. And, and, and then when Ozzy he's got hurt again. Case. He's, a, he's, a, he's a very talented young player, but he's a head case, I'm telling you. Uh, the longer you... <laughs> The longer you wait to admit that, the more frustrated you're going to become. Enormously talented, an electric bat, but a head case. He's just, that's who he is, and I'm afraid that's who he's always going to be. Now, Janos, excuse me, Freehold, has a chance uh, in the next three days to be a spoiler again in Philadelphia. Uh, the Braves and Phillies start a series tomorrow, and that's the one game the Braves play that the Mets do not play. It's kind of interesting. Uh, and now the Braves did clinch a playoff berth last yeah, night. Yeah, you're right. Play an extra round if you don't win the champion. I mean, if you don't win your, your division. So um, you'd rather rest. Right. You'd rather sit back and not take the chances. I, I want to I stop there and go back down another road. Uh, it's about sports. But I read a story yesterday. Now, the Atlantic Magazine would argue that they are one of the um, 
what are the epicenters of liberal in- intelligentsia? I mean, the, the intellectual liberal world likes to read the Atlantic. It would be a little bit like the the conservative. I mean, folks that I associate with in the world of politics are always talking about what the American conservative had to say. Did you read Dreer's column in the American conservative? Of course I did. What do you mean? Don't you insult me by suggesting that I may or may not have read Rod Dreer's story of the American conservative? Sure I did. Do you not know who I am? I mean, I, I'm, 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 you know, somewhat intelligent conservative, you know, and, and moral man. So, so of course I've read Rod Dreer. Um, who doesn't read Dreer? <laughs> you know, who doesn't read what Rod Dreer? Well, the Atlantic Magazine, would he be similar to that? A thought leader in, in liberal world or in the liberal world. Um, one of the weirdest stories I've ever read, and I couldn't stop reading it yesterday afternoon, um, the case for co-ed sports in the Atlantic Magazine. And the, the article is making a case that the, the least reasonable way to segregate kids from playing sports against one another is sex. They're arguing that, um, that it makes a lot more sense to give someone a strength test or a, so some sort of a athletic competitiveness test instead of um, traditionally as we have. I mean, historically and traditionally, we've said, okay, the girls' teams are over here. The boys' teams are over there. The Atlantic Magazine and some of their thought leaders are arguing that that is such a, a an antiquated and outdated um, and old-fashioned way of doing that. In fact, we need to um, come up with a new model. And they've not really proposed a new model except to say the old one simply is not working. And they're encouraging, well, you know the story here, um, transgenderism and women play in men's sports and men play in women's sports. But there are so many analysis given in this by, by some of the um, uh, liberal clinical scientists who have been ascribed the task of making sure we, we, um, we have the proper competitors uh, competing against the proper fellow competitors. And it is amazing to me um, how committed liberal America is to the social causes. Once again, the case for co-ed sports. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've highlighted a couple of uh, paragraphs here but I want to find one in particular that I found um, very. I mean, they, these are like um, sociology professors at UCAL Berkeley. I mean, they 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 basically formed a committee, and the committee is exploring how best to segregate co- competition and athletic events. Um, who is allowed to wrestle in college? I mean, if you're if you should there even be a men's wrestling team? Should there be a women's soccer team? Now, as a college football fan, I kind of like that. It may be a way to skirt around some of the Title IX provisions because the 85 scholarships, I went back and looked at some of the language of the bylaws last night. The 85 scholarships given to college football players in what we'll call Power Five football um, are not dedicated to men. It doesn't say 85 scholarships to be given to men play the game of college football. But the 85 scholarship is what forces um, the baseball team not to be able to give but five or six scholarships. Um, the men's tennis team not to be able to get but one or two scholarships. In other words, there got to be a kind of an equilibrium between the number of women who are on scholarship in men's, uh, excuse me, in uh, college sports, and the number of men who are on scholarship in college sports. So if you've got 85 men on scholarship in college football, you've got an abundance of scholarships to make up in the, some of the women's sports. So everybody on the women's um, golf team at Clemson is probably on scholarship. Every female playing soccer 
at the University of South Carolina are probably on scholarship to once again offset the 85, you know, the 85 football scholarship. Well, I can't find where it says those are male scholarships. So be careful what you ask for, feminazis, as Limbaugh once <laughs> Lim- referred Limbaugh to those to folks as. Um, but because I think the the college athletic world could easily argue that, you know, the 85 scholarships are left to the head coach's discretion, and he decides who he wants to play an offensive line. He decides who he wants to be an edge rusher. And if there's some 6'3", 220-pound chick that can run a four five forty. We may just suit her up and let her play on the edge and see if she can beat that three hundred twenty five pound left tackle from Tuscaloosa. You know, to the quarterback or not. You see where I'm headed? It's just so bizarre to me, Rev, that we've gotten this place. And you should read some of the comments. Um, if the skill, size, and strength of any participant, female or male, compared to other players on the team, creates the potential of a hazardous environment. Participation may be limited on the basis of these factors rather than the sex of the participant. I'll give you a quick story. Um, the women's soccer team, the women's Olympic soccer team, was looking for sparring partners, and they wanted to play up a bit. Their coach wanted them to be challenged uh, because if you would imagine, the the women's soccer team, the national team for the Americans, would probably be the best of the best women. I mean, I know we don't have women and men anymore, but just stick with me. For, let's make the assumption that we still have certain genitalia that identifies you as a man or a woman. So the, the, the coach of the women's soccer team wanted to play as good a competition as he could and basically push his team to the limit. You know who he played? The 18-year-old state team from Texas. The best soccer players in the state of Texas, 18 years old and younger, beat the women's national team 5-2 to two and 6-1 to one in consecutive games. So, so how do we argue that once men, once young men go through puberty, uh, begin to generate testosterone at natural and normal levels, you can't argue that they're not slower, not as strong. I mean, the, the men are bigger, faster, and better athletes. They just are. I mean, do, do you every now and then find a woman who can compete at the um, at the male level? I, I, I'm trying to think. Annika Sorenstam in golf, I think, competed in a, in a, in a PGA male event or two and, and fared okay. I mean, she didn't, by any stretch of the imagination, win. Never was a threat to win, but she didn't embarrass herself. Um, she was probably, at, at that moment in time, probably Serena Williams, just retired. I mean, Serena Williams is as physical a specimen as a female that I've ever seen. I mean, would you agree with that? Of course. I mean, she is yeah. a strong, um, physically intimidating female tennis player. How many Power Five college male tennis players would Serena Williams beat and lose to? You know, if, if, if Serena Williams played at Stanford or Georgia or Florida, I'm trying to think of some of the other perennial pipe. Texas A&M has a really good women, excuse me, a good men's um, tennis team. Could Serena Williams beat the number one ranked college player in every Power Five conference in America? No, no. She'd lose far more than she won. So when the Atlantic Magazine is arguing that, you know, we're doing a lousy job of segregating who gets to play in what sport because we're, you know, we're using this traditional model, this this antiquated and chauvinistic model, this bigoted model of not letting women play. Here's what my answer would be. 
If I were the AD at Clemson or Carolina today, I'd say, look, I mean, these 85 scholarships are not male scholarships. I mean, they're scholarships to be given to the person that the coach, whether it's Shane Beamer or Dabo Sweeney, believe could perform best. In other words, we're looking for an edge rusher. I mean, if there's some 6'3", 220-pound chick, once again, that can beat that 330-pound lineman from Tuscaloosa, then that's who we're going to play. And all of a sudden, the, the men's baseball team gets this proper allotment of scholarships. The men's soccer team, the men's golf team. But, but the 85 scholarship is, I mean, it's a burden on Title IX. What did we have in Columbia over the weekend? Oh, We had a kerfuffle. Yeah, we did. Um, we didn't get enough Title IX athletes off the field uh, but between quarters of a game, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they had a celebration. Imagine this. Imagine the school that allows Dawn Staley to get away with what she gets away with. I mean, imagine that school having a Title IX celebration and trying to march out Title IX athlete after Title IX like athlete. a couple hundred. After, yeah, I think it's about for two, like nearly 300. Uh, made their way onto the field. So they were to get on the field and off the field in about six and a half minutes. Good luck with that. Um, how do you celebrate? I mean, look, once again, let's celebrate Title IX, but but between quarters of a football game, um, and they couldn't get him off the field. Beamer had some things to say, and Ace had to, to apologize. But but the absurdity of the left in believing that there's no... Look, at 10 years old, when a young boy has not gone through puberty is not generating or producing testosterone at a normal to natural adult level. Yeah, women can probably, little girls can play with little boys as six and seven and eight-year-olds. I mean, you know, coordination and strength on the majority, are there's not a lot of difference there. But once a male goes through puberty, once a male begins generating testosterone at a normal and, and proficient level, it's not even close. On the averages. I mean, it's, it's not even close. And it's just bizarre to me that we have a, a world out there. <laughs> and this is very, I mean, once again, the Atlantic Magazine is where, I mean, if you're a liberal American and, and you're committed to try and understand, um, you know, why you believe what you believe, you, you want solidification or, or, or affirmation about your worldview, you probably read the Atlantic as much as I do the American conservative. And, and this was, it's, it's just a staggering read. It's about seven pages, um, the case for co-ed sports. And I mean, these are experts. I mean, these are researchers. These are, are folks with a clinical background, psychological background. And, and they're arguing that we must get rid of um, this, 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 this doxology of, <laughs> of um, I mean, we got neuroscientists here. We've got... Um, uh, biological. Excuse me. What were you going to say? I was going to ask how you, why you read that. I mean, I can understand if you see a headline and why you read the Atlantic. Okay, and I'll what does that why. do for you? Because I think I would be a paragraph into that and go, I'm not reading this because crap. I've always felt Title Nine was unfair. So you're trying to hear their argument. Well, as let, to, let them indict themselves. Let them incriminate themselves. I mean, the, the, their argument is there's no difference. I mean, a man and a woman should be able to compete on a similar athletic event or in a similar athletic event because one is not even better than another. They they argue in this article, they argue that the only reason we believe that is because of sports. We've let we've let that narrative dictate. In other words, um, we're going to hey, little girl, you can't play with the boys now. Boys, you can't play with the girls. they, They argue there's nothing scientific there. There there's nothing biological there. It's it's what we've decided. I mean, in other words, we've told the girl she can't play with a boy. 
We've told the boy he can't play with a girl, that there's nothing biological there. I mean, that's the argument they're making. This is a matter of the mind. You know, but little girls, let's say little, little girl, 12 and 13 and 14-year-old girls have been told, you know, you can't play high school football. You're not big and strong and fast enough. In other words, they're arguing there, there is no biology to suggest that. They, they don't accept that boys are bigger, faster, stronger. I mean, they just don't buy into that. You could read paragraph after paragraph. So, so my point is, I mean, if they're stupid enough to believe that, because newsflash, at the age of 16, on average, by an overwhelming margin, boys are bigger, faster, and stronger. Nearly every boy is bigger and faster and stronger than nearly every girl. That is biological. I mean, that apparently is God's design. That's the way he intended it to be. But no, when I read this, I guess you're asking me, why do you want to read something to make you mad? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm not thinking about getting angry. What I'm thinking about is, and I've always said this, why does the girls' softball team at Clemson have everybody on full scholarship, but the boys' baseball team at Clemson has one-third of the players on full scholarship? Title IX. And, and the reason the boys have to be skimpy on some of these minor sports is football has 85 scholarships. So, so the point I'm trying to make is, and I went and looked at the bylaws last night. I mean, I looked at the NCAA bylaws, some of the um, scholarship provisions. There's no language in there that says these 85 players have to be men so or, or young men. So let's just let, let's, let's all of a sudden have a press conference, commissioner of the Big Ten, SEC, uh, Pac-12, ACC. Let's get all these folks together and say, hey, I mean, it, it's, it's open. We're, you're right. I mean, it, you're right. I mean, Shane Beamer and Debo Sweeney should, should be allowed to go recruit a, a woman to be an edge rusher, linebacker, cornerback. Uh, I mean, we, we, I think West Florence may have a female kicker. Okay, fair enough. I mean, can that female kicker play linebacker? Can that female kicker play on um, left tackle? Can that female kicker play defensive end? Let's find out. But let's conclude, let's, let's give these folks exactly what they want, and that is a world where women are no different than men, and a football coach can go find the 85 most able bodies and give them scholarships and not declare them men scholarships, men athletic scholarships. Next thing you know, everybody on the baseball team gets a scholarship. Everybody on the men's golf team gets a scholarship. We, we've settled that logjam because historically that's been the problem. The, 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 the number of scholarships it takes to keep a football, because football is a rough sport. I mean, people get hurt. You know, people, you know you, you, we saw that a couple of weeks ago in South Carolina. Two of their starters got hurt out for the year. I mean, you got to have some backups and some backups to their backups. Not necessarily the, the case in golf. I mean, if you start a golf season at Clemson, you're probably going to finish the golf season. If you start the football season at Carolina, you may or may not at some point in time need someone to take your place because of, of injury. So, uh, yeah, the 85 scholarships are not for men. They're for the most able-bodied edge rusher, defensive tackle. And uh, so, so I'm really trying to beat them at their own game. But in essence, you know, they're making an argument that is bizarre, unbelievably ridiculous. But, but it's an argument they're making. So let, let's, let's, you know, mm-hmm. let's get off the hook with Title IX. Eight four three six six one. So they may get what they want, and then some unintended consequences. Well, I mean, is what I, you're I doubt very. I mean, I, I give things too much thought. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm convinced of that. Most read it and say that's pretty interesting, and move on. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to be more committed <laughs> than most. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a minute. We're going to the phone. Let me read this real quick, and then we'll go to the phone. The insistence on separating sports teams strictly by sex is backward argues Michelle Amusto, an assistant sociology 
professor at the University of Cal Berkeley who has studied the effect of the gender binary on students and young athletes. Here's our quote. You ready? Part of the reason we have this belief that boys are inherently stronger than girls and even the fact that we believe gender is binary is because of sport itself, not the other way around. The strict sex segregation we've instilled in sports at all levels gives the impression that men and women have completely different capabilities, but in reality, the relationship between sex and athletic capability is never so cut and dry. <laughs> there's a um, there's okay. a professor at a major university, one of the um, one of the respected bastions of liberal thought. Let's go to the phone, Roger and Coward. Hey, Roger. Good morning. Good morning, folks. Um, thank you for pointing out all this this morning. Uh, consider the source where it came from, UCAL Berkeley. Um, I got a challenge for Dawn Staley that she will not accept. Uh, we're getting ready to start basketball practices. You know, we're getting this late September. Uh, for an exhibition game, and let's charge admission, let's let her bring her national champion women's basketball team down to the gym at Hannah Pamplico, and let's play the single-A Hannah Pamplico Raiders. You'd be surprised what the score would be. You and I wouldn't be, but a lot of the general public would. Oh, they'd be shocked. They'd be absolutely shocked. This idea that you've got to make everybody, male and female, equal, all we heard during the pandemic was follow the science. Well, where the heck is the science now? I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. The only one on the left that's making any sense now, when you hear him talk, is Bill Maher. He's the only one that's making any sense. He's telling the Democrats, you're ruining yourself with this wokeness. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. And and the point Roger's making, I mean, go back to the, 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 the best female soccer players in America were on the U.S. Olympic team. They were looking for competition, something to push them. They played the 18-year-old state champion traveling team in the state of Texas. I think it was a Dallas-based team, but it was the best 18-year-old soccer players, not in America, not in the world, but in the state of Dallas. The 18-year-old soccer team in the state of Texas, beat the U.S. women's Olympic team 5-2 to two and 6-1. to one. Now, I don't know much about soccer, but it looks to me like 2 to nothing in soccer is a pretty good whooping. 6-1 to one is a drubbing. 5-2 to two is a drubbing. I mean, nobody scores six runs, or excuse me, six goals in a soccer match unless you're just a lot better than the other team. So 5-2, to 11-3. What was the two-game score between, once again, the best female soccer players in America – and here would be an interesting, and I mean, this would be sad, but this, I mean, give them what they want, okay? Let's do this. I don't have any idea who Georgia plays this coming weekend. I know who they played last weekend, um, but I don't have any idea who Georgia plays. But let's find one of the strongest female athletes in America today and put her on the defensive line against Georgia. Or better yet, put her on the offensive line. I mean, let's find the, 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 the CrossFit champion, the, the 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 weightlifting champion, let's find a female who is unbelievably accomplished at whatever women's strength event is the best measure, and let's put her on the offensive line against the Georgia Bulldogs this weekend, and it won't last long. I mean, it won't last long 
at all. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Here's Breeze. Good morning. You know what? The whole the, 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 the BS of all this is, is that none of this was ever designed to really far. It wasn't really designed because they care about this victim class, whether you may be a, a female, gay, trans, what, it don't matter. It's not, it's not about the, the, these uh, fascist Democrats caring about women's sports. They don't give a rat's behind about that. They, they, can, they can care. They, they, it's about hurting men. And it's also about causing division. You're having this talk right now, and it's probably pissing some woman off somewhere. It, it, but there's probably other women saying, well, you know what? You shouldn't be bad because men are blah, 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 blah. But just like with the Citadel, when they were talking about bringing um, the women into the Citadel, it never was about helping women get the same education that, that I got when it was single gender. It was about destroying the Citadel. Everything they're doing is designed not to build, but to destroy and divide. It causes dissension and animosity between people. If they were, you know, that they wanted to do things really fair, you know, it really comes down to this. Uh, I guess I guess a college is more of a communist community anyway. But really, <clears throat> the people that get scholarships are to go through the, yeah, you got to make some money. If you're going to have a team that doesn't make money or at least break even, shouldn't it probably be a club sport? You know what I'm saying? I mean, but, but, this, but the colleges are just another communist community. So everybody should get an equal amount of scholarships. You know, the next thing is maybe scholarships should be based on income. And then that would be, that would be, uh, that would be unfair too, wouldn't it? So the bottom line is everything in life is unfair, but I know some of the strongest women in the world, and even they would tell you, and I know some women that can probably beat about half. My wife can be at 95% of the men's butts right here in Mount Pleasant, but then you're talking about the sissy capital of the world. My wife does dumbbell presses of 40-pound dumbbells. My guy clots can't do that. But there again, my guy, the buddies that I do know are a lot stronger than she is, and they're actually strong. So this whole thing, though, is about division. And any woman, any gay or whatever the heck, you know, or any African-American or any person that thinks that any of this stuff is just to help them, they're, they're like quotas at, at med school law. It's not designed to help them. It's just designed to cause animosity and division and, and get people angry at each other. That's all it is. Thank you, Breeze. But why would a woman, I mean, I'm not a female, why would a woman be angry at me today for shining a bright light on an issue that is going to um, disallow their female daughter from justly competing in a sport of their love? I mean, let's say there's a, there's a, there's a female out there that loves to play tennis, and all of a sudden, in 32 states, she's got to beat some dude. Really? I mean, she's at an unfair advantage. I don't care how frustrated people get when I say that. Women are not as big, strong, and fast as men on average. They just aren't. Men are bigger, stronger, and faster. Breeze just said it. I can say, That doesn't mean every man is bigger, stronger, and faster than every female, but by a very wide margin and by a high percentage, women are not as strong, big, and fast as men are. Only 18 sports 
or excuse me, 18 states have passed legislation that bans trans girls and trans women from playing on certain athletic teams uh, at the college and high school level. So if you're the mother of a daughter, the father of a daughter, why are you angry with me? Why wouldn't you be angry with those who are letting men compete against your daughter in an event she has very little chance to be successful because she's simply not as big, strong, and fast and not going to compete at that level with that male competitor? I get the animosity. I get the division. I understand exactly what Breeze is saying there. But 32 states in America don't have laws that ban transgenders. 18 states do. So 32 states in America and their policymakers have said, I don't want to get in the middle of that. I mean, I I don't know what to do about that. Sure, you know what to do about that. Girls compete against girls and boys compete against boys. And when there's no opportunity, I'm not opposed to a female playing football if there's no chance for her to play football. In other words, let's say I'm Sumter High School doesn't have a female football team. Let the girl try to play football. That's kind of the point I'm trying to make. Let's get let's get one of the most extreme examples imaginable this weekend. Let, let's find a female, a, a big, strong woman. I mean, Breeze could find one for us. Let's find a big, strong woman, and let's, let's put her on the field uh, in the Tennessee-Florida football game, and let's see how long she lasts. Once again, I'm not saying women don't have a right to compete in a sport when they don't have an option. In other words, if you're a female and you like to lift weights, and you like to train, and you think you can hold your own on a high school football field, get out there. Get out there and have at it. But for a man to want to compete against women in women's sports, somebody's got to protect the wide of that female. That female is genetically nor biologically as strong and fast and big as the man. Somebody has to protect that female tennis player, that female golfer, that female basketball player. That's my point. I'm not worried about the men. The men will do just fine. It's the female that needs protecting here. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, and you'll find 99.9% of the people that want to transgender and go into sports is men transgendering the women. Just some useless facts here. In, in tennis, you were just talking about. The average speed of a serve for a woman in professional tennis is 124 to 136 miles an hour. The average speed of a man's serve is 142 to 163 miles an hour. There's no way a woman can compete with that. So your your 25th, 50th, 100th, tennis player of a man can go into a women's tennis court and play as a woman has a 15 to 20 mile an hour advantage just automatically. The Democrats have run out of victimhood, so they're, they're, they're having to create more. And that's all it boils down to. I mean, they've created the races now they're going into sexes. They've always got to have a victim so that they can say they've got compassion. And and the worst thing about it is they don't really care. I just saw a, a cartoon about three fastest things in the world, the speed of light, an airplane, and getting 
immigrants out of Martha's Vineyard. I mean, this is getting almost ridiculous. These people don't care about the 53 that died in the trailer being smuggled, but they're worried about giving them a bath in a hotel and flying them for an opportunity to Martha's Vineyard, and they get all up in, in arms. But hopefully we're going to change that come uh, November. Hey, who's running in the 7th District for uh, our congressman? Because I haven't seen a advertisement yet. Have you? I have not. You're talking about in uh in the new in the in the Russell Fry Tom Ross congressional district. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Russell, the, or, I mean Russell, Russell against who's the Democrat? I don't have any know. idea who the Democrat is. I should know, but I don't. Well, I, I was trying to remember Russell Fry. Yeah. I haven't seen a. Maybe he thinks he doesn't need to advertise, run a campaign, or he just don't get voted in without any advertisement whatsoever. I think Russell's doing some advertising. I mean, I know he's not doing any here, and I don't know what sort of advertising. I talked to Russell. I'm names dropping now. I think I talked to Russell Monday of this past week, and he wants to get on the show. In fact, I think, uh, Freehold, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, his, one of his staff reached out to us to come on the show at some point in time. I mean, R- Russell's big struggle was the primary, Joe. He knew that. You knew that. The most of us knew that. But I'd like to see him not take this for granted. I mean, anything can happen. Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson. <laughs> you know, the uh, the U.S. hockey team beat the Russians. So, yeah, I mean, I'd like to see him see this thing through as aggressively as he possibly can. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. But, yeah, we had a lot of oxygen sucked out of the room with Tom Ross and Russell Fry, yep. and it's not been as hotly contested in the 7th District. Let's find out why. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Brian in Florence. Morning, Brian. Hey, guys. Uh, this problem goes much deeper than college athletics. Um, we've already been conducting this social experiment. Look at our police force and our military. We've literally lowered the standards to allow women to take positions where they can be easily in hand-to-hand combat with men. And you, if you look at any of the police videos, they have women trying to apprehend male Overwhelmingly, they get destroyed. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's physical. It's biological. It's not something that we make political that we have already. And is this something, thank you, Brian, appreciate it. Is this something that women want or women think they want or they've been told to believe that they're being taken advantage of or put in an, an inferior position? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a woman. I mean, I can't speak from that perspective. But but how many females out there have daughters that you genuinely want your daughter competing against a man, fighting a man for a gun. I mean, I, th- I think Brian's onto something there. I mean, a female law enforcement officer. I'm not saying a female shouldn't be a police officer. I'm not saying a female shouldn't be a basketball player. I mean, I'm not saying a female shouldn't play golf or tennis. Of course, women deserve every right that a man does in regards to pursuing their dreams, being the best they can possibly be. But if you're a mom of a daughter or a, or a father of a daughter, and the mom confuses me because I see the demo. And I read the polling, and and women are voting Democrat. College-educated females are voting overwhelmingly in favor of Democrat candidates. The Democrat Party embraces this um, non-binary gender identity. I mean, it's 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 odd to me that women are being. I don't want to say hoodwinked. That's unfair. I mean, I don't know. I don't have any idea what motivates a woman to say that's the um that's the political party I have most in common with. 
I mean, I get Trump, and I understand the um the outrageous behavior, and you may not like that. But but as a female, as a mom, do you want your daughter competing against a a man? That's bizarre because the Republicans don't want that. The Democrats do. So you're kind of sort of in a weird way endorsing some of this belief or 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 you know. Um, what has surprised me is you don't hear a lot of females, and especially female um, equality type leaders speaking out about it. Why not? I don't have any idea. And I'm not, once again, I'm not arguing that women don't deserve to play tennis. I just don't think they need to be competing against men. The, the most interesting example I can come up with is Serena Williams, because she's a fiscally imposing female, right? I mean, she is a big, strong female. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, some of the others are, I mean, Annika Sorenstam. If Annika Sorenstam, and she competed in a PGA event or two, and she didn't embarrass herself. I mean, she never was a threat to win, and I think she went into that knowing there was some novelty to this. There's a little bit of a gimmick here. Um, Tiger Woods sits at 330 yards. I hit it 250 or 60 yards. I ain't whipping him. I'm not here to beat him. I'm here to celebrate the advancement of women, women athletics. I get that. I'm cool with that. Um, but could Serena Williams beat the 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 200 rated, the 200th ranked uh, male tennis player? I don't think she could. Could she beat the 500th male tennis player? I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about tennis to know where kind of that line of demarcation is. I mean, she'd beat me. She'd beat you. Mm-hmm. She'd be probably anybody listening to my voice. But, but of the 500 best male players, I mean, she is probably the greatest female tennis player ever. And the reason I choose her, I mean, it's kind of, she looks like she would not be uh, easily intimidated. Um, her, her physical prowess, her, her athletic, uh, I mean, you know what I'm saying. She's a, she, bigger, stronger, faster. I mean, if, if, if we believe the difference is bigger, stronger, faster, she looks bigger, stronger, faster than most females. I think some of it's genetic. I think some of it is um, training. I think th- some of it's dedication and her honing her craft. But how would she fare against the 100th rated male tennis player? I think she'd get beat bad. The 200th. I think she'd get beat bad. Uh, you get to 300 to 4. I don't know. I don't have any idea. But but the political point I'm trying to make, and I'm not really trying to make a political point. But but if you're a but, but if you're a female, and the Democrats embrace this gender neutrality. That all of this is sociology. It's not really genetic. It's not biological. Uh, men aren't any stronger, bigger, faster than women. That's just what we've been told to believe. Sports has kind of um, insinuated that in some weird way. And, and I want my female, I want my daughter, I want my child to be able to compete against the best. The absurdity of that. I mean, it's just absurd. And, and that, that's the confusion I have. It's not that there are liberals out there who want to break down all the barriers and change all the standards. I mean, that's what liberals are kind of in tune to do. You know, go back to the word marriage. A lot of Republicans said, hey, is civil unions okay? You know, talking about gay marriage and homosexuality and all these other sorts of things. And and there was a big debate in America years and years and years ago. And I remember supporting Giuliani. And and Giuliani was for civil unions. You know, if if two grown men or two grown women, uh, via their consent, if they want to have a relationship that includes whatever it includes in the privacy of their home, uh, or, you know, then we get insurance benefits and all these other sorts of things. But the left wanted to change the word marriage. The word marriage meant something. I mean, it was religious. It was a matter of faith. It was about, um, you know, the right wingers. And um, m- most Republicans weren't that bothered by men having civil unions with other men, women having civil unions with other women. But the Democrats and the liberals said, yeah, but they're, that doesn't piss them off enough. 
I mean, we've got to change the word marriage. And I think some of that is, is in here, but, but it, it's just some of these guardrails, uh, you know, I live, I mean, I live life with, with pretty, um, far reaching guardrails. I mean, mine aren't very confining, but th- there has to be some degree of, of sanity and normalcy in what we believe to be appropriate or not. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Hampton. Hello, Jim. Good morning. Hey, Ken, I think the word you're looking for to describe Serena is manly. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So I, I, I know you're a deep thinker. I'm in the more shallow end of the, the, the thinking pool, but it's 2022 in America. And I just want you to contemplate this, this, this thought for a minute that as a person with XY chromosomes, which we used to call a man with a penis, you can consider yourself pregnant. But if you get pregnant with a female and you want to have an abortion because you don't want to bring that female into this misogynistic society that's, that's so full of bigotry and sexism and intolerance, there are professors at UC Berkeley that will stand with you and carry your banner for you. That's where we're at right now. That is where we are. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that very much. And I can tell that he's not in the, the shallow end, but rather <laughs> the deep end. I, I get lost in the deep end. I mean, I think I'm qualified to go in the deep end at times, and I get out there and I realize how out of place I really am in the deep end, and I kind of make my way, I dog paddle back to the shallow end where I belong. But, uh, but no, I mean, th- th- there's a lot kicking here. I mean, there's a lot of, it's not just the Atlantic magazine having an article about whether or not men should compete against men and women against women. I mean, there's a lot of other issues here. Um, is there any, is there any more obvious designation than a man is a man and a woman is a woman? It's the not old slippery slope argument. The next thing you know, we, we, we've, um, we've torn down all the guardrails, you know, anything goes. And, and maybe that's where the left wants to get America. But, but the point I'm trying to make is, and I guess everything to me comes down to elections and politics, especially as we head into the midterms, it looks to me like the women are standing or steadfastly supporting the Democrats. I mean, there, there's some polling to show the Hispanics have moved. There, there's some polling to show some of the, um, some of the independents have moved. There's not a lot of polling that shows the women have moved. I mean, the women, co- college-educated women in particular, college-educated women and, and blacks, are, are, are pretty, I mean, they're a pretty dependable voting block for the Democrats. Why? I mean, if you're a female, I mean, if you're a mom, that means at one point in your time in your life, you weren't a mom. You were a younger female. Let, let's say you were a younger female who wanted to play a little bit of sports in high school. Or you like activity. You like to play intramural sports. Or you like to play, um, maybe, maybe you're an adult now and you like playing to the YMCA or the gym. You know, you like competing. Do you really want to compete against a dude? I mean, is that fair? And the Democrats have said, yes, it's fair. It's necessary. We've got to break down this binary barrier. We've got to stop with this, you know, two sexes, men and women. Uh, what, what did Joe Biden say? There's at least three. I mean, what, what doofusy an answer is that? And, and, and some, have been, uh, some have gotten far more sophisticated. Some of the professors at UCAL Berkeley, you know, they, they believe there's, you know, some believe there's seven genders and eight genders and nine, and nine genders. But, but the point I'm trying to make is kind of sort of political. 
And, and, and I like to throw it back in their face. But I guess as someone who has run campaigns and had been responsible for trying to win an election, uh, where's the gain to be made? Where's the hay to be made? And my mind immediately went to 85 scholarships in college football. Because I've assumed, as, as you have, Rev, that those are 85 dudes. There's nothing in the bylaw that says those are male scholarships. It's not the men's football team, right? I mean, it's the men's basketball, the women's basketball, the men's golf, the women's golf, the men's swimming, the women's swimming. There's nothing referred to a football team as the men's football team. So, so why do those 85 scholarships, why, why are they categorized as men, you know, male scholarships in Title IX? I'm talking about Title IX now, and um, I don't have any idea why. But, but I think when, when you read this article in The Atlantic, it proposes that there is no difference. So if they're proposing and arguing that there is no difference, then let's open up college football to women. And if Shane Beamer or Dabo Sweeney believe they have found a woman in Johnsonville, South Carolina, that can compete at the SEC or ACC level, sign her up. But those are no longer male scholarships. Those are gender-neutral scholarships. Those 85, you're right. I mean, they got the, the men's golf team, I mean, those are categorized as men's scholarship. The women's golf team, women's scholarship. The football, the 85 scholarships that dominate the college landscape and athletics, those aren't categorized or qualified as as male scholarships i mean if there is no male nor female how do you categorize i mean why is it a women's golf team why is it the why is dawn staley the coach of the lady gamecocks right i mean why she's the head coach of the women's basketball team at south carolina no she, she's she's the coach of the basketball team at south carolina so so some dude should sign up to you know, to play for the women's team. Since there is no designate, I mean, there, there is no designation anymore. There are no genders. There is no binary. So some guy should say, hey, I want to try out for the women's basketball team at South Carolina because there really isn't a women's basketball team at South Carolina. Right. And Dawn would be a real good one to make an example of. Right? <laughs> Why you I say mean, it? she's about as woke as they come. <laughs> so let's make an example out of her. I want to take a break. I want to come back on the other side for y'all. I know we'd get a, a little bit of excuse me, ahead of ourselves a bit. I want to get your take on something. There's a there's a, uh, a ballot question coming up in uh, this midterm in the state of Georgia that is going to exempt property taxes on timber equipment. Why timber equipment? I mean, I'm for lower taxes. I'm for less taxes. I'm for empower the private sector. But, but why should timber or farming or food production be treated any differently than whatever business mom and pop are running. Take a break. Back in just a minute. So the Georgia timber equipment exempt from property tax measure. I mean, that's a heck of a name, but that's what it is on the on the ballot. It's a referendum before the voters in Georgia that will change the state's laws so that starting January 1, 2023, all equipment associated with logging in the timber industry, and I'm talking about forwarders and harvesters and chainsaws and skidders and saws and stump grinders, log band saws, log loaders would be exempt from ad valorem taxes. Um, now the, the timber itself would not be exempt, but all the CapEx, all the capital, you know, required to run a logging operation would be exempt from any ad valorem taxes. Um, and Georgia did some digging, did some research. I don't have any ideas who's behind this. Somebody ought to believe it's the timber industry, obviously. But um, as far as a political action committee or consulting or lobbying firm. I don't have any uh, idea who they've hired, but data shows the timber industry paid nearly $20 million in ad valorem state taxes in 2020. Um, 
and they're arguing. Brian Kemp supports it. Uh, Brian Kemp is supporting this measure. He's argued, and here are his exact words. You ready? Um, this will help us treat the forestry industry the same way that we do agriculture, as well as protect hunting, fishing, and conservation land and more. I mean, obviously, the timber industry supports the measure. Um, Toby McDowell of C. McDowell Logging claim uh, it takes eight to ten pieces of equipment, including trucks, trailers, for us to want run one logging crew. The overall cost of that equipment is increasing every day. So when you consider the tax bill on our equipment, it determines whether we purchase new equipment, keep old equipment running, or just give up on altogether. Right now, um, this is a break that really makes our business more beneficial. Um, there is no organized opposition to this uh, ballot question. And um, there, there's been some uh, members of the General Assembly who have said that they oppose it because it's um, uniformly unfair. In other words, um, it doesn't apply to the construction industry, doesn't apply to hairdressers, uh, doesn't apply to car dealers. I mean, everybody has a car out and an exemption. But what do we think about that as conservatives? I mean, what do we believe is fair or not when it comes to certain sectors of the economy, um, the farm bill, the timber bill? Um, or are we not picking winners and losers? I mean, aren't we trying to have our cake and eat it too when we say this industry and this sector of the economy is a little more important than another is? I mean, I understand trying to give tax relief to businesses that need uh, to be profitable. I understand the importance I'm, of timber. I'm for tax relief. I mean, sure. Lower I, tax, I, I, but, but, tax but, for everybody. But, but why not? I mean, I'll use a family business. Why Why not building truck? Why is building truck beds not as important as harvesting timber? Why is... um. Why is running a restaurant not as important as producing food? We got to be real careful about what we believe is essential and what we don't believe is essential. And it seems to me that the government, in its infinite wisdom, is trying to pick winners and losers. Uh, now they would argue, and I think Kemp makes a sound argument when he says this is a um, this creates advantages in rural parts of our state. In other words, the timber industry is not in the metropolitan areas by and large. Um, so that that would be, I mean, if I were supporting this um, timber exemption, my argument would be it's good for rural America. And we need to empower rural America. We need to develop a plan that adds advantage to rural America. The majority of timber is not cut in downtown Atlanta. I mean, I got to believe it's in some of the uh, some of the foothills and plains of Atlanta. Uh, but that's just kind of interesting. What What do we? I believe. Now, in 2000, they gave certain tax exemptions to farm equipment of, listen to this now, only family-owned farms. If it was a corporate farm, and I don't know how you distinguish between a family-owned farm and a corporate farm, in 2006, they approved an additional measure, expanded the homestead exemption and property tax exemption for agricultural products. Is I mean, we, we can't live in a nation that doesn't produce food. We can't, we can't live in a nation that doesn't produce or doesn't harvest timber, um, but can we live in a nation that doesn't serve food in restaurants? Can we live in, in a country that doesn't manufacture truck beds? I mean, I, I don't remember in my family business ever getting an exemption uh, anywhere remotely close to that. And, um, and I think as conservatives, we have to be um, try to be consistent about what we believe or what we don't believe. Why is this business more deserving than that? Uh, why do we curry favor? Why, why does this group believe that um, that it deserves more than this this other group? Now, now once again, um, some of these tax breaks for uh, let's call selected industries are, are not without consequence. Um, they've got to be accompanied by some sort of offset, right? 
or a tax increase. Uh, but if the timber industry in Amer- in Georgia uh, raised, what did I say, $100 million? Uh, not quite that much. What was it? $20, uh, 20 million. $20 million in ad valorem um, taxes to the state, and that $20 million goes away. What do you make the $20 million up? I mean, does the, does the government cut spending by $20 million, or do you tax somebody else at a higher percentage or higher rate to make up the $20 million? The twenty million, because once again, um, when you lose revenue via the uh, the discounting or exempting of ad valorem taxes, um, that burden shifts to a taxpayer or industry that apparently is not quite as favored by politicians. And I don't. Do they ever take back those exemptions? You know, once somebody has it, they're going to fight to keep it. Right? Well, I can tell you this: in my time in Columbia, I found this out, and I don't know if it's still the case or not. That would have been twelve years ago. But when I was in Columbia, 11 years ago, when I was in Columbia, t- uh, tobacco twine was tax exempt. Now, we hardly use tobacco twine any longer, but it led, to me, led me to believe that the agricultural lobby back in the day went to Columbia and said, hey, we're using an awful lot of tobacco twine and, and we need to be, ta- you know, the taxes on tobacco twine to be exempted or forgiven or, or done away with. Um, that there's so, but, but, but my point is, I'm not saying the timber industry deserves it or not, but if the timber industry was paying $20 million a year in ad valorem taxes and they're not paying $20 million, is the government going to cut spending by $20 million? If not, they're going to shift the burden to somebody else. And that somebody else could be a radio station. It could be a truck body manufacturing business. It could be a restaurant. It could be a car wash. It could be a construction company. Is that fair? I mean, don't we want some sense of uniformity? In taxes, I mean, I don't think, I mean, you don't want to be hard on timber industry or the agricultural right. industry, but do they deserve, does any sector of the economy deserve preferential tax treatment in your eyes? And I'm talking to, to our listeners. I mean, does anybody out there have an idea? Is there one sector of the economy that we need to be more favorable toward than another? I mean, we, we do it all the time. I mean, we've done it a lot. And once again, when there's a $20 million hole in a state budget, do you really believe they're not going to spend as much this year as they did last? They're going to have, I mean, if this passes, they're going to have, by definition, $20 million less. Where do they get that new $20 million from? Or do they cut spending for $20 million? And what was that $20 million being spent on? I mean, you and I know they could cut spending and be okay. But that's not likely. That doesn't happen a lot in state nor local governments. Um, so where do they make that $20 million up? So the timber industry gets an exemption. And maybe the construction business gets hit in the chin. The car wash business gets taxed at a little higher rate. Uh, Got to be real careful about um, shifting burdens from industries or, or or sectors that have gained political favor to those who have not engaged in uh, in lobbying politicians and petitioning government to get by. Uh, curry favor and get some sort of advantage you know the state government's not going to say well we'll just spend 20 million less this year and in the future well i mean if brian kemp says he supports it i mean if you're if you're a serious and maybe this is the story the um the death of journalism but if there were competent journalists out there that really were dedicated to understanding not trying to get a sound bite not trying to make a name for themselves so they could write a book be famous and host a morning show um but if they were serious about their job they would do the work to find out how much deficit this will um, you know, create. And, and once Kemp says, I'm for it, well, Governor, how do you plan on addressing the $20, $20 million um, shortfall, you know, or deficit that we will have as a result? And he should have a good answer. Now, now his answer will be, because he's a Republican, we're going to cut spending. But, but Kemp's not an appropriator. 
I mean, that's the job of the legislature. Uh, and I don't I mean, there are a lot of laws like this. I mean, it's not it's just I mean, it became pretty obvious to me that Georgia is trying to um, somebody in the timber industry. And trust me on this. Somebody in the timber industry um, has some political connection. And the the timber industry is probably operating on pretty narrow margins, thin margins, COVID, you know, and some of the, uh, they couldn't get out of the, in the, you know, in the, in the field and woods and cut timber and do their job during COVID because of some of these restrictions and requirements. And they're probably hemorrhaging cash or not as profitable as they were looking for every advantage they can get. But, but you got to be careful about allowing certain sectors of the economy to be exempt from ad valorem taxes because once again, it creates a deficit. Somebody has to step in and make up that deficit because history shows me that the government is absolutely not going to to cut taxes. Uh, we would be derelict in our jobs today if we didn't spend a good bit of time talking about the Fed. The Fed will announce at about 2.30 today what their new Fed fund rate will be. Uh, I went back and looked since 19, uh, well, the past 62 years. I've got a 62-year historical chart here. Uh, and once again, the Fed Open Market Committee, they meet eight times a year. Um, and they're they, expected to, to take rates up by 75 basis 75 points. 75 right? basis points is what Wall Street is anticipating. And the market has kind of adjusted or already built in that 75 basis point rate increase. But that the, the Federal Open Market Committee is what meets today, decides what the fund rate is going to be. Um, they meet eight times a year. And they basically meet to determine the federal funds target rate. Uh, the current rate as of yesterday was 2.33. I'm sorry, as of Monday was 2.33. I've got a graph and a chart in my hand that I think is so interesting. And it goes back 62 years and it gives kind of historical graph of where the fund rates, where the Fed rates have been. Um, we are un, in uncharted water. I mean, I showed, I'll show Rev here real quick just so you can validate. Um, you see the highlight mark I've got? Yep, yep, where I mean, that, that is basically zero. At the bottom. I right. mean, that, that is basically zero. Is there any other time in our history that we've been anywhere near zero? Uh, no. no. I mean, we've been at 2.5%, 2.25%, But since um, the world blew up in 2008, we have had a monetary policy that has been ridiculously careless to the point of being reckless I mean, it's reckless monetary policy i went back last night and really tried to study and decipher i actually watched a lot of cnbc i watched a lot of bloomberg online um trying to better understand it once again guys these by and large are sunshine pumpers you know they're, they're people who it's kind of interesting um wall street is in a tizzy i mean they're all upset at anybody that has anything to do with sound monetary policy because they've done exceedingly well when we've had ridiculous monetary policy. We've practiced irresponsible monetary policy far too long. Now, now who's in bed with whom? Who's lobbying whom? We're talking about George and Timber a second ago. I mean, I don't have any idea. I mean, I, that, that's so far above my pay grade. I did watch an interview on CNBC, and this person is very bearish on the market. I mean, he thinks we're going to sell off another 30% before it's all said and done with. And the interviewer said to him, well, I know you speak to Fed governors. And that's just like, oh, okay. Uh, I thought the Fed governors were to be neutral. But but he said, I know you speak to Fed governors. I mean, this is one of these big shots. Somebody's with Oppenheimer or, you know, Guggenheim or one of these big uh, funds that have a lot of influence in the financial world of which you and I live in. But 
Rev, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic, and I'm trying to look at a data point. And I understand some of these data points, and some I don't. But, but, but some of the fundamental data points, I kind of understand. And, I, and I've, I've, I've come to believe that there's no reason to be optimistic. I mean, we're talking about American optimism and, you know, uh, the, the hope we have in the future of our country for our kids' sake and grandkids' sake. There is no data point out there to be optimistic or encouraged about. I mean, there simply is not. If there's 100 data points, none of these paint a good picture. None do. I mean, we can go to the Fed rate. We, we can go to the um, the number of people turning 65 every day. How many people do you believe are turning 65 every single day and will continue to turn 65 every day for the next 10 years? 10,000 people every day will turn 65 for the next 10 years. I mean, that's a data point. I mean, Social Security, Medicare, that's a data point. Well, we're doing nothing to address these data points. And if there's 100 data points, there's not a single one that I find encouraging. And I'm not a negative guy. I'm not a doom and gloomer. I'm kind of sort of the mayor of Realville. I've always said that. You know, Show me something to be positive about, and I'll be as positive as anybody. Show me to be something negative about, and I'll be as concerned as anybody. And there's simply no data point out there in finance land or really some of the demographic in conjunction or in correlation with finance to be encouraged about. Um, a billion dollars a day. You know what that number is? That's our debt service. By the time the, the Fed rate gets raised to, I think it's 2.50 today-ish. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, it's 2.33 today, or was the So let's round off. It's two and a half. I mean, just for argument's sake, we're, we're two and a half. That's the Fed fund rate today. They're going to take it up to about three and a quarter. If it gets to three and a half, our, our debt payment is a billion dollars a day. That's no principal. We're not paying off any debt. So, so the government, mine and your federal government, are going to spend $1 billion every single day to simply service the interest on the 31 trillion dollars we owe that should be the end of the show i mean that is the data point we're going to spend 1.2 trillion dollars next year in debt service we're going to spend about 1.05 trillion in defense spending i could go on and i mean i don't want people jumping off buildings and cliffs but i mean there's nothing in this encouraging there is no data point. CNBC is full of pimps, prostitutes, and, and sunshine pumpers. I mean, they, they've got to be bullish, right? I mean, everything, and, and it's interesting to me to watch them yesterday complain. They've lived in a world of quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, and they've made god-awful amounts of money. I mean, of the, of the money printed and, and put in circulation, I mean, nobody has benefited any more than, than Wall Street when it comes to 0% interest rates and quantitative easing. But they, it's almost like it's a license to steal. How can you not make money as an investor with 0% interest rates and quantitative easing? I mean, it's almost, it's almost impossible not to make money investing in, you know, the S&P 500 when interest rates are at zero and the Fed is choosing to be as active as, as they've chosen to be. Well, now the Fed realized or has realized or begun to realize we can't do this forever. I mean, we just can't. We can't pump this much liquidity into the economy and keep interest rates as suppressed 
and expect any sort of economic reality to be on the other side. So now the Fed is beginning to wake up and say, hey, we, we got to do something here. What we we got to take some of the liquidity out of the economy because this inflation is not transitory. And, and we've got to raise interest rates. And Wall Street is losing its mind. The, the, the geniuses on CNBC all of a sudden aren't so smart. I mean, it's easy to be a genius. It's easy to be a good, um, uh, a good you know, sailboat captain when the wind's blowing to your back, right? I mean, anybody can do that. I mean, it's easy to be a good shortstop when every hop's a good hop. But all of a sudden, we get a couple of bad hops, a couple of negative news, a, a, bit, a nugget of negative news, and, and all of a sudden, inflation rears its head. We knew this was the other. There, there was no other outcome but inflation. It was impossible to not have rampant inflation at some point in time. And now CNBC is talking about, well, the Fed's trying to destroy the economy. No, the Fed is trying to put the economy back on some reasonable track of realism. We've lived in la-la land since 2008, and we better wake up and realize we can't live in la-la land forever. You can't have 0% interest, and you can't have that sort of quantitative easing and not expect us to have inflation. The Fed eventually has to address inflation, and as a result of that, th th there's going to be a dramatic decline in, in the, the, the speed of which our economy moves. Uh, forward momentum, you know, forward velocity. And I heard a lot of these analogies yesterday reading and, and watching some things. But, uh, but I want to go into a couple of other data points here as the show progresses. Right now, let's go to the phone. Katie in Florence. Good morning, Katie. Hey, uh, good morning. Um, I want to make a comment about what you were talking about earlier about agriculture. I didn't hear the whole conversation, but just based on what I heard, um, I, don't, I think it's good to encourage investment in agriculture in our state. I mean, um, there's not industries not coming to South Carolina, or at least not to where I'm from. And um, I mean, why wouldn't we increase our food production here? And could we ever be able to export? Or maybe we do. I don't know. I don't know how much farmland's available in the state, but maybe it needs to be a priority. Um, that's all I really wanted to say. Right, well, that's a lot. I mean, there's a big debate in South Carolina. What is the biggest industry in our state? Is it agriculture or is it tourism? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you talk to the tourism people, it's tourism. They can kind of, you know, I don't want to say cook the books, but they can monkey around with the numbers and make it look like tourism is the biggest industry in our state. Is it agriculture? I mean, if you include forestry and some other, you know, um, ancillaries of agriculture, that's not the point I'm making. I believe that tourism is important. I believe that agriculture is important. But, but I was talking about timber and farming. I mean, if, if we're going to exempt some of the farming business from ad valorem taxes and the timber business, is that fair to the guy that owns the construction company? Is that fair to the person that owns the car wash? I mean, I'm not a farmer. I mean, I grew up on a farm. My father was a farmer to some degree. Um, but, but is it fair to incentivize or advantage some of these companies over other companies? That's the point I'm trying to make. This is in no way, shape, or form anti-timber industry or anti-farming. I mean, if you knew where I come from, I mean, the, 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 the butter on my family business's bread was timber and farming. I mean, the better timber did, the better our business did, the better farming did, the better. But I mean, from, from, a, from a philosophically, from a politically and, and philosophical debate, is it fair to exempt the timber industry from ad valorem taxes, the farming sector from ad valorem taxes, but not the construction company, not the car wash, 
not the guy that owns the paint business or the HVAC business. That's the point I'm trying to make. It, it's nowhere. I mean, I'm not trying to antagonize the timber industry nor the farming sector. I mean, they're, they're critically important and vital. And yeah, we need to make investments and do what we can to create growth in those in those sectors of the economy. But if the state of Georgia votes on this Georgia timber equipment exempt from property tax measure, the state has $20 million less in ad valorem taxes. Do they make that up somewhere else or do they cut spending by $20 million? And if they make it somewhere else, aren't they transferring the burden? I mean, if we're paying this money to receive services, the timber industry is still receiving the service, that the agricultural sector is still receiving the service, but somebody else is subsidizing that. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's not that I'm opposed at all to timber or farming for that matter. I mean, I would be the least likely guy to oppose advancing those sectors of the economy. But is it fair to cut the budget by 20 million in the name of making sure those guys have uh, a market advantage? That's, that's just a debate. I mean, I'm not saying I know the answer, but I think that's an interesting question to pose and debate to have. Take a break back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So I'm looking at the chart that you used as your example during the last segment, and it's uh, not my chart now. It's the federal. I mean, it's, the, it's from the Fed. Right, I mean, right. It's from their website. The one you're using as an example, and it shows okay. the zero percent interest rates are close to zero for you know fourteen, twelve to fourteen years. Mm-hmm. And you know, I look back and I say, okay, the economy was okay. You know, stock market was you know through the roof. Um, but you're saying that 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 growth or perceived growth is not real it's artificial correct I mean, what- that's exactly what i'm saying i'm not saying every ounce of it is i mean i'm, I'm not qualified to say you know i know exactly how much of this growth has been artificial the majority of growth in the economy since the uh, the world blew up in 2008 has been inspired by the fed i mean it's been i mean no country has ever kept interest rates that low for that long i mean i'm showing you the graph yeah. again and that's the part that sticks out because you can see it's it's a long graph how does that 50 50 or 60 62 years, years. 60 years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can see that there's, there's ebbs and flows. There's gyrations sure, where it went sure. real high back in the... That's I the guess Volcker the, years. The, yep, okay, back in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it gyrates over the course of the next few decades, but yeah, there's a straight line at zero well, from me, 08 let, to now. I'll give you an example. So in the Volcker years, we had 6% inflation and interest rates went to 19%. Today, we have 9% inflation and we're worried about Fed rates going to 3.5%. It's, it's a fault. I mean, the, the economy is not this good. The economy's not been as good as we've been led to believe it is since 2008. Now, now you know, if you're an investor, you, you've had so much wind at your back, it's hard to not win the sailboat race. I mean, in all honesty, when you've got this much quantitative easing, this much liquidity pumped into the economy, um, at the same time, you've got zero percent. And I'm not saying, I mean, Carl Icahn said it better than I. Icahn said, we're all on a party bus and the party bus is going to run off of a cliff. Are you getting off? I'm not. I mean, I'm an investor. I can't say I've got my billions. I'm good. I mean, I, I you know, it, it's the most reckless monetary policy a, a nation, a, a developed nation has ever allowed itself to be beholden to. But I'm playing the game. I'm not a Fed governor. I, I'm not in charge of the Federal Reserve. I'm not a congressman. I'm not a senator. I, I'm a guy who invests based on the rules of the game. And I've never had the rules this easy. I've never, I can said it. Uh, a month or so ago. If you can't make money in this market, you need to find something else to do. That's the point. Yes, I am arguing that the majority of growth in this economy post-2008 has been artificial in nature. Let's go to the phone. Here's Brad in Florence. Good morning, Brad. Hey, guys. Good morning. Uh, Going back to the Georgia Timber Bill, um, 
wanted to give you a local situation. So I, I'm a pastor at a church and manage kind of day-to-day operations. And so earlier this year, I got a tax bill for a copier that the church leases through a um, company here in town. And so I called the company, and they said, no, just let them know you're a nonprofit, and did that. They said, no, you still have to pay. And so I, I couldn't give it up. I called the Department of Revenue in Columbia and talked with some very nice folks who told me that by statute, the only group of, of businesses that were able to be exempt were hospitals. And so, Ken, I think it goes back to your point. It's, it's all about the lobbying. You know, as, as a nonprofit, as a church, that would be beneficial not to have to pay a property tax on a copier. And then it drives me crazy that we're getting taxed on copiers. You know, in Georgia, they're getting taxed on a chainsaw to run their business. How much does the government need to operate? Yeah, that's an interesting concept or interesting thought. The point I'm trying to make is if if Georgia loses $20 million in ad valorem taxes as a result of the Georgia timber business being exempt from certain ad valorem taxes, do they cut spending by $20 million or do they make that, do they shift that burden to certain sectors of the economy or industry that don't have as much political favor. Uh, that, that's kind of the point I'm trying to make. So a copier at a church is taxed. Copier at a hospital is not. 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. Well, let's stop the complaining and moaning and griping and fussing for just a Aww. second. I mean, that's kind of what conservative talk radio <laughs> is. We complain about the world around us because we feel like uh, the world is changing, not in a better way. If you have the view that we have something near and dear to my heart and you guys have listened over the years know that exercise is a big part of my life i mean it's something that i believe uh not only makes me a better radio show host makes me a better husband and father and uh, just business partner and all these other sorts of things and anytime i get a chance to engage with an expert in that field and in i don't know rev enlighten our audience about what is out there scientifically related uh about health and wellness and fitness and exercise and diet and and nutrition i want to take advantage of we have with us this morning co-owner of integrated medical center in florida been treating nfl mlb pga nba athletes celebrities and people from all walks of life for two decades dr greg larravee dr larravee how are you good morning are you there yes i am are you can you hear me yes sir we hear you just fine sorry for that um gave you a a rousing an uh, introduction on your on your resume here but but I, i'm i'm someone who is very interested in exercise fitness and wellness uh i'm in the uh the the latter part of midlife i guess and um and i made a commitment to myself and my family to be as healthy as i possibly can from here to the finish line but but but, but there's a comparison or analogy here that you make that is unique and different from anything i've read and that is that switching from a sedentary lifestyle to a workout schedule is comparable to smoking versus not smoking. Is this your opinion or is this a matter of science? Well, this is actually in a study uh, that just came out in uh, the British Journal of uh, Sports Medicine. Um, we've all known that aerobic activity is uh, important in lengthening life um, and improving the quality of life. But this study, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, what are you doing for workouts? Are you just doing aerobic exercise? Or are you in there in the gym uh, moving some weight? I do three days of strength tra- training and two days of aerobic cardio exercise. I get my five days in every week and half for about 17 or 18 years without missing a single day. And I'll tell you, my objective is longevity and quality of life. 
I mean, I want to live a long time and have a good quality of life until my last breath. Now, who knows what tomorrow holds, and I accept that. But but I, I have gathered enough data and talked to enough experts such as yourself to convince me that a an hour in the gym will lead to an eventual longer and more fruitful life. Well, you're, you're right on track because the study that came out um, suggests, obviously, that one hour, we know the aerobic activity is there. Everybody, you know, you know, most people that are working out are doing that aerobic activity. So one hour of aerobic activity ha- lowers your uh, mortality risk by 15%. Doing three hours a week of aerobic exercise lowers your mortality rate by 27 But he- here's the kicker, and you're right on track with the, your routine. If you combine aerobic activity and one to two strength sessions a week, you've gone now to a whopping 40% lower mortality risk. Dr. Larravee, why will people not dedicate the effort? In other words, I mean, the science is fairly clear. And now we have this smoking versus non-smoking analogy or comparison. What do we need to do to convince others? Because if I go to Walmart, the parking lot's full. If I go to the gym, it's half full. How can we get an inversion of the the parking lot at Walmart being half full and the parking lot of the gym? Is there an education that we've missed? Is there a um, some sort of incentive program that we've squandered? How can we engage America and convince them that this is in all of our best interest? I mean, that's a great question, right? I mean, so the, the key starts from the healthcare community. Uh, we as doctors should be prescribing exercise just like we prescribe medication. Um, and, and, you know, everybody wants the easy way out, uh, and, and, you know, they're taking their medications, but, the, you know, exercise requires time and commitment, um, and, and sometimes it's challenging, uh, but we have to remember it's never too late to start, uh, but we have to get consistent with our, our, our routines. Start small and build up, uh, but you have to come up with a routine that's, that's sustainable. Uh, if you start out too hard, uh, you're going to get those injuries. Uh, you can't keep up with the schedule. So the key thing is starting small, starting slow. And as you see the results, it will motivate you because you'll feel better. You'll sleep better. Um, you, you'll think better. Uh, and all these things lead to that consistent pattern. How important is sleep? Sleep is huge. I mean, the other thing that's uh, that's important is a healthy diet. Right? So we look at the uh, top two uh, diseases in America, uh, heart disease and cancer. And, and the common denominator in these things are overweight, smoking, and unhealthy diet. So, w- you know, we're, we're, we're stopping the smoking. So there's a lot less people out there that's smoking. Um, you know, the key thing is, is the diet and exercise. Uh, but, you know, like you said, I mean, sleep is a huge component to you. And sleep is when the body regenerates, when the body rests. So that way we can attack the next day. Uh, and not be tired to get out of our chair and, and get moving. Last question. How important is the consuming of alcohol? Um, I'm kind of a teetotaler during the week. I'll drink a couple of drinks at a meal on Saturday or a football game on Saturday. But how important is it to, uh, I don't know, control your alcohol intake? Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, alcohol increases inflammation in our body. So, you know, like I tell my patients, um, everything is a happy medium. Um, so we want to decrease inflammation, and, and guess what? Exercise actually helps decrease chronic inflammation in our body. So you, know, you have a beer on Sunday or a couple of beers, 
well, on Monday, get, get out of that chair and do your aerobic activity. Go, go for that swim. Go for that walk. Get on your bike. Uh, get in the gym or just stay home with some resistance bands. That's all, that's all we need. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Very encouraging news and appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks for having me. That's kind of an interesting, and look, I don't plead with people to do much, but I really wish, and I, and I believe this with every fiber of my being, um, if we were to collectively lose, you know, a trillion pounds as a nation or a hundred billion pounds as a nation, and we got our metrics better in line, in other words, our blood pressure, our cholesterol, our, our resting heart rate, but if all, I just think America's a better nation. I, we talk about deficit. We talk about the Fed. We talk about zero percent interest rates. We talk about you know quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. Is the Fed going to raise rates seven, uh, 75 basis points or you know 100 basis points? I don't know, but but I know this: I'm better able to deal with it if I'm in a good state of mind. If I'm, if my body's healthy, and I think Rev, I mean go go back to youth sports. I mean I think as a young person, you can get away with a lot. I mean, you really can. You, you can you can eat lousy and drink too much and not exercise. And there's something about the youthfulness of a human body that allows it to deflect. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can just I don't know. You just you get away with a lot of of different sorts of things. But but when I look at the country, and here's what is alarming to me: um, the obesity rate in America is staggering. I mean, the, the clinical definition of obesity is a body mass index of over, I think, 33 or 34%. I mean, it's it's an alarming number of people in America today who are obese. And and I get it. I mean, I, I've done it. I mean, 210 turns into 215. 215 turns into 220. 225, and all of a sudden, 210 turns into 240. And you're 30 or 40 pounds overweight. Um, been there, done that. Know exactly how you feel in relation to that. But when I look at the the demographic in 2010, there were 40 million people in America over the age of 65. In 2020, there were 56 million Americans over the age of 65. In 2030, there'll be 75 million Americans over the age of 65. And in 2040, which is only, what, 17 years from now, a little better than 17 years, there'll be 81 million Americans over the age of 65. I mean, it's the baby boomer phenomenon. It's a lot of other, uh, you know, longevity of life. We're living longer, uh, medical advancement, technology, and healthcare. I mean, there's a lot of contributors there. But we're going to be a nation that in 30 years goes from 40 million people over 65 to 80 million people over 65. What percentage of those people are going to have health complications? And what percentage of those health complications are as a result of being overweight and not fit? So I'm pleading with people. I mean, I respect the liberal and the conservative and the red state and, and blue state, but, but there's something all of us need to do, and that is take ownership of our health and well-being. It's not the government's job to decide whether you eat a dozen donuts or a seaweed sandwich. I mean, those are extremes, but, but it's, it's up to you, and you've got to make a, a conscious effort and attempt to take better care of yourself. And when I saw this, I mean, this is interesting. They're actually arguing. The British Journal of Medicine, Sports Medicine, did an extensive research, and they're actually arguing that those who do aerobic exercise and strength training, I mean, obviously have a low risk of dying from health complications, but but they're comparing it to those who are living very sedentary lifestyles or like a smoker. Those who are living, uh, you know, abiding to workout schedules and living a more active lifestyle, 
they're like the non-smoker. And I think we all understand the danger of smoking. We all understand how much better your health is if you stop smoking. And, and that's just kind of an interesting twist on the debate about, you know, why is it worth it to take better care of yourself? And I'm going to tell you, and then we'll take a call. Here's what I've learned. If you treat your health as an extracurricular, you'll always struggle. Your, your weight, your, your health. I mean, you've heard me say this to you a hundred times. Uh, I read a book. And in the book, the guy said, your gym time is your employment time. I mean, it's a part of your job. Because if going to the gym late in the afternoon is an extracurricular, it's easy to find a reason not to go. But if going to the gym is a part of your routine, it is who you are. It is what you're about. It is just as important as going to work, just as important as going to church, just as important as, you know, being on time for a dinner meeting with a friend or a business associate. It is an obligation you've made to yourself, a commitment you've made to yourself. Honor that commitment. Meet that obligation. And I know it's hard to get started. It's interesting to me in January, how many cars are in the lot at the gym. By February, there's fewer. By March, it's back to the usual suspects. But but we have a lot of science now that shows, and I'm not trying out for the Green Bay Packers. I mean, I'm not trying to beat Serena Williams in tennis, but I want to live a long, healthy life. And I have, and I think you folks understand how much data I try to consume and how I, I'm a little bit anal about that. I mean, I can be a real pain in the butt about trying to read everything there is about everything. But, but there is no doubt in my mind that the most fruitful thing I do every day is the hour and a half I'm at the gym, caring for my health and well-being, positioning myself to have a longer and less um, medically complicated life. And I would strongly encourage anybody listening to my voice, make that commitment. I mean, don't jump at the deep end to begin with, uh, you know, kind of kind of dabble with it to begin with, but eventually it will become a part of who you are. And if you miss a workout or two or three, that there's this guilty complex that comes over you and you don't feel complete. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, Ken, uh, a good topic. I uh, uh, We just got back from the beach last night late, and we'd been down for about four or five days. And, and it, man, uh, uh, around the pool at the at the uh, facility where we stay, uh, it, it was shocking. Uh, it I'm not talking overweight. I am talking morbidly obese people. I we never seen anything like it. And and, and um, uh, the real shocking part is how young they are. There were a lot a lot of folks that were in their late twenties and thirties. <clears throat> Ken, I'm telling you, some of these people were pushing three hundred to to three hundred and fifty pounds, and it's scary. Uh, young 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 kids, uh, thirteen, fourteen years old. Um, I mean, they were, some of them were, had to be over 200 pounds and it couldn't have been over, you know, five foot, five foot six, five foot five. And, uh, some, maybe a food shortage might be a good thing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, and it, it sure, it'll scare you. And, and I, you know, and, and I, we can't talk cause we we're counting a few extra pounds too. And we just, made a commitment to each other about 30 minutes ago that every day from now on, we're going to go out and walk about a mile or two miles every day. And, uh, cause, cause we need to get, get some weight off too. But man, I don't know how these poor folks get around. Um, you know, they're having to, you know, we, we were sitting next to a, a 32 year old woman at the pool and she had, she was so big 
she had to have a, a one of those electric carts to to get around on. And and she ate the whole time she sat there. She ate. Yeah, and and I and I, 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 I hear you, Bob. And I don't want to be insulting. I mean, I understand. I mean, the majority of people listening to my voice right now are overweight. I mean, I accept that. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate the call. Um, I'll, I'll tell you something that's interesting to me. I go to the beach a lot. My wife and I enjoy sitting on the beach. She'll read a book. I'll, I'll just kind of look around and plunder around, and I'll you know check Facebook or inst, um, uh, not Instagram, email or you know what I mean. Just, just kind of stay busy, and I'll doze off on a Saturday afternoon on the beach after a few cool ones. Um, <laughs> but but it, it, there there's a there's a phenomenon now. Now uh, I see a couple of women standing up with their back to the sun. So I asked my wife one day. I said, "What's up with that?" She says, "A lot of women have gotten too big to lay on their stomach, so they stand up." With their back, you know what I mean? They want to get some sun on their face, Ooh. sun on their back, get a little color is what these females call it. You know, I don't want to be pale. I want to have a little bit. I don't want to be a, you know, a Hawaiian tropic supermodel, but, but I don't want to be pale. I want to get a little bit of sun, a little bit of color. Um, so, so women now, and this is sad. I mean, I don't want to insult anybody. I, I certainly, like I said, I know that the majority of people listening to my voice right now are more than likely a few pounds overweight. So this is not to insult, but rather to encourage. We've got to a place where a woman has to stand up because they can't lay in a chair on their stomach to let the sun shine on their back, and they stand there and read a book. And that's sad. I mean, how we've allowed ourselves to get here. I mean, I know a lot of the answers, and a lot of it is not of our control. I mean, uh, high fructose corn syrup and processed foods, and we're all in a hurry, and, you know, the slop buckets with drive throughs I mean, we get a million calories and, and 3,000 fat grams and an artificial hamburger with food glue and all these other sorts of things. And and to eat healthy is expensive. You know, I, I, I struggle with that. You know, th- those who don't have a lot of money have to do the best they can in, in nutrition-related matters, and it's hard to eat healthy if you don't have a lot of money. You know, I'm not big for, for government intervening, but let's incentivize, you know, quality food producers, and let's make that food more affordable. But but at the at the end of the day, health care belongs to you. I mean, you make a conscious decision whether you eat two cheeseburgers or one, whether you eat fruit or fries, whether you drink a uh, you know unsweetened tea or a sweet tea. I mean, those are daily decisions that we all make, and I make some bad decisions. I mean, I build a life for myself. Monday through Friday, I'm rigid. I mean, I'm on it. I know how many protein grams, fat grams. I know how many carbs. I know this that. Saturday and Sunday, I have at it. I mean, cheesecake, donuts. Uh, whatever, cold beer. I mean, it doesn't matter, but that's kind of the world I built. Everybody can't live like I live. Every, you know, my, my wife does a different sort of thing. Her friend does another different sort of thing. But but genuinely care about your health in a way of being. The best investment you can make in your life is in your health. Nobody can make that investment for you. And once again, I'm not intentionally insulting. I'm not trying to say, I've got it figured out. Damn it, you need to as well. I mean, it's still a struggle for me. I mean, when I when I walk by when the, when I drive by the Krispy Kreme on a Wednesday and the red light's on, you don't think I want to turn mm-hmm. in and and attack one of those sugar bombs? <laughs> of course I do, but but I've conditioned myself to know that that's just not good for me. Now Saturday morning, that red light's on, I may eat a half dozen before I get out of the parking lot. But I've kind of earned <laughs> that, you know what I mean? And I, I, I've kind of built a lot. I will that, say I've witnessed your willpower because there have been mornings when people have brought donuts and 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 biscuits and. You know, fancy stuff in here for us to to eat, and you, I can sit here and have one, and you won't. But you, catch me on no. a Saturday morning yeah. or a Sunday morning, I'm and I'm a glutton. You, give you credit, but but we all have to. Uh, I mean, your health care is your responsibility. 
And you've got to invest in taking better care of yourself. Rio, you wanted to say something. Well, when he was on the phone, I think it was interesting. I wanted to see where they were from. Uh, he kind of answered their age group, but where they were from, um, you know, what gender and race and everything. Because I think that's important because all these young women um, are seeing all these ads, these plus size women. Oh, big is beautiful. No, you got to stop that. They have to stop with that woke stuff because it's bad for you. Um, so it's not about uh, being superficial. It's about health. So, you know, if Old Navy or whoever does, uh, does those, you know, gigantic, you know, 300 pound women modeling off their clothes. No, that's not. It has nothing to do with, you know, how the media wants you to look. It has everything to do with being healthy and they don't get that. Yeah. And, and that's the key. I mean, it, you know, it, it, your healthy weight would be one thing. My healthy weight would be another. Rev's healthy weight would be something else. The point I'm trying to make, and I'm not trying to insult. I mean, I want to say this over and over and over again. I probably got a text from my wife here if I turn my, my phone over. Stop with that talk. I mean, there's no way to win that. <laughs> you, you, are, you are able, if you choose to, to take better care of yourself. You are perfectly capable of taking better care of yourself if you choose to. You have to make that decision and it's an important decision and once again i hope this is more encouraging than insulting because i'm certainly not intending to insult anyone take a break back in a minute 843-661-0937 fox news radio's jeff manasso is in chicago illinois jeff is with us this morning jeff good morning how are you i'm doing well good morning so we are here to speak or i hope you are here to report on the um the judge assigned to review the documents uh, seized in the Mar-a-Lago raid, um, kind of sort of pushed back a little bit on some of the Donald Trump lawyers yesterday uh, about the declassification issue. What's the latest, Jeff? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, he's tasked with going through 11,000 documents uh, through, uh, he's got a deadline of November 30th. So um, he says that he'll proceed with what he calls responsible dispatch. Uh, Judge Raymond Deary is his name. Um, and these are documents that Trump claims he declassified, uh, every one of them. Uh, Deary told Trump's lawyers that he needed to prove whether the documents held at Mar-a-Lago and that are seized by the FBI were declassified. The Trump's lawyers argued that they should get more time to assert the classification of the documents seized. Deary, uh, Deary, though, said that the Justice Department already gave him prima facie evidence or evidence accepted as correct until proven otherwise. Uh, and that these are class that, that that these are classified documents. Um, as for the records, trustee the the uh, lawyer for President Trump argued that uh, that the president, while serving as a sitting president of the United States, could declassify whatever records he wanted. Uh, that presidents have unfettered access along with unfettered authority, and that Trump's team should not be forced to disclose a possible future defense. Uh, though Deary replied, I guess my view of it is that you can't have your cake and eat it, too. And obviously that's the headline on um, you know, CNN and everywhere else this morning. Uh, some of those documents included classification markings. Some were personal and some are being claimed by the former president's legal team as covered uh, by executive uh, or attorney client privilege. Uh, so, so you know, we'll see what happens. Um, as far as Deary, I mean, he's a he's a 78 year old former federal judge known to be a straight shooter, uh, and, and but he was also among the FISA court judges who, in 2017, approved the FBI and Justice Department's request to surveil the Trump campaign as part of that failed Russia probe. 
Um, lawyers and advisors of Trump reportedly believe that Deary's role on the FISA court made him a deep skeptic of the FBI after its surveillance of Carter Page, uh, which influenced the Trump's legal team's decision to to suggest him. So we'll see what happens. Um, uh, the uh, Deary is giving uh, Trump's team until Friday to pick a third-party vendor to scan, host, and provide both parties access to the material seized by the FBI. Meantime, the DOJ is also asking the 11th Circuit for partial stay and allowing attorneys to continue using classified documents seized in Mar-a-Lago uh, in its criminal investigation. Is this all about, I mean, is, is, is this one of a multitude of issues? I mean, from your perspective and, and the news you've gathered or what you've read or heard or reported on, or is this one, or is this the single issue, whether or not Trump declassified these documents or not? I mean, is, is that what the case is all about? Or is this one of a multitude of issues that the case is about? Um, I mean, look, this is, this is, you know, it's, it's wrought with politics and, and obviously, you know, Trump is considered the 2024 candidate, uh, against Biden or, or whoever. Um, so, so it's, it's, there's, there's, there's politics all, all over this thing, but, uh, you know, President Trump has, has said, this is, this is basically a, a political hit job. Uh, and, and, and that, uh, you know, this is this, the, the FBI, the DOJ could have had any any uh, article, any document uh, at Mar-a-Lago if they wanted to. All they had to do was ask. Um, you know, I, I you know I, I try to look at through a, a lens of, of, of just like you know exactly what's going on and, and what we see in real time. This is unprecedented for the for the FBI, the DOJ to to storm into a former president's home. So, you know, what exactly did he have? It's speculation that there's a lot of material on Russia, the DOJ's involvement, the FBI's involvement, and perhaps that's why they wanted Deary to look over these documents, because he'd see exactly, being the guy who signed that FISA warrant, uh, exactly what Republicans and Trump say the FBI and DOJ were up to when they surveilled his campaign. Very well explained. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate your time. Have a great day. You bet. And we've not talked a lot about that because there's not been a whole lot of news to come out. But I did read yesterday that Deary, um, there, there's there, the Trump team has reason to believe that Judge Deary is skeptical of the FBI right now. Um, now, now is that true or ac- I have no idea. I mean, I don't know what's true or not. I do know that if you Google uh, Special Master, I mean, you just you know go to Google and find Special Master. And it's The Guardian, it's The Daily Beast, it's Axios, it's NBC News, it's CBS News, it's TheHill.com. You've got to look long and hard to find an article, Politico. I mean, you got to find, you got to look long, New York Times, you got to look long and hard to find an article that paints the FBI, or excuse me, that, that elaborates on the skepticism that Deary has toward um, the FBI. Hmm. And and he did, but he, Deary was very intimate to the FISA court judge being misled. Remember some of the, um, the Klein Smith, if I'm not mistaken, it's Kevin Klein Smith, uh, who altered the document that was um, given to the FBI, the FISA court judge, the FISA court judge granted the FISA warrant. Um, now we know that, I mean, Klein Smith lost his job. I think he still got his retirement pension. Of course he did. But, um, but, but Deary was very, um, not involved, but, but had a lot to say about the FBI dropping the ball so profoundly in, in that single issue. So um, we'll see where this where this washes the out. headlines I was seeing yesterday, and it was based on, I guess, some things that Deary had released 
and what he was saying and asking in the proceeding uh, was, uh, according to some of the people I saw on Twitter, was very, you know, very against Trump. And it was a bad day for Trump in front of well, I mean, Gary. It, it seems to be. Were, were responding and it was a big back and forth, but it wasn't a great day for Trump. Well, I mean, it, it seems to me now, it seems to me that the Trump strategy includes what if we're indicted? In other words, we've got to operate under a set of rules, but but we've got to keep in mind that we may get indicted. How do we defend ourselves in a potential, in an eventual or potential indictment? I mean, that that's what I think. And once again, um, that's all I've read. I mean, it, it did seem, I mean, you're right. The media painted Trump as having a bad day yesterday, but the bad part of what when, when I, you can't have your cake and eat it too. There were certain things the Trump legal team wanted to do or not do because they felt it would take away an advantage if they were indicted. And, you know, the, the, the news says, well, all of a sudden Trump accepts that he's going to be indicted. I mean, I know Trump doesn't accept that he's going to be indicted. Trump understands an indictment is, you know, could happen, but it could not. It could happen. Who knows what the um, DOJ will decide in relation to this. And, um, but, but I don't think Trump had a terrible day yesterday. I think the argument Trump's legal team tried to make, now, once again, the media is going to paint it one way. You know that. I know that. The majority of our listeners know that. But, but the Trump legal team's argument yesterday was, hey, we'd love to tell you this, but if we tell you this, then we don't have that defense in an eventual indictment hearing uh, if indeed we end up in trial and in harm's way. Now, the question I have, and I don't know the answer to this, and I've read and read and read and tried to find and, and talked to a couple of folks, is the, is the declassification issue the central issue, the only issue, the issue that matters the most, or is it one of a multitude of issues? And Jeff really didn't know the answer. And, and he doesn't. I don't think anybody knows right. the answer to that. And um, Well, I mean, I say nobody knows. I mean, the DOJ knows. You know, maybe the special master knows, but they're not going to. I mean, it, here's a little bit encouraging news. If the DOJ believed that they had Trump dead to rights on a multitude of charges, it would have already been leaked. I mean, they, they have a history of leaking bad news. Uh, anything that's unfavorable to forward, for, to, toward former President Trump. I mean, it always works that way. Sure. I mean, it's a leak after leak after leak. But because there's no leak leads me to believe that they're basically um, they're banking on this declassification argument. And to be honest, that's probably breaking the law. I mean, if you argue that you declassified something and Trump has, but there's no evidence that you did and eventually find out that you did. Now, that, that wouldn't surprise anybody about Trump. I mean, would that really surprise you? that Trump said, I declassified some of that stuff when he honestly did not. I mean, that wouldn't surprise no. me at all. No. I mean, it, you know, but, but to suggest that he's going to sell the nuclear secrets to the Saudis because he's got financial issues, I mean, that's absurd. And that's where some of the media goes. You know, what was included in the, in the classified information that President Trump says he declassified? Was it nuclear secrets? What was it some sort of um, national security strategy? Was he going to sell it to the highest bidder to pay off his debts to the Russian oligarchs? I mean, we've heard these uh, nonsensical stories before. It seems to me that the issue is Trump plays loose and fast. I mean, nobody's surprised by that. I mean, a business guy with no political experience kind of sort of runs that office a little bit like a business. And sometimes you dot the I, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you cross the T, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you play exactly by the rules, and sometimes you don't. And, and, he, and he all of a sudden became a part of a world where if you don't dot an I, 
People want an explanation. You don't cross the T. People want an explanation. You don't do it the way the process or system or machine says it has to be done. They want an explanation. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if we get to a point where we find out that Trump said he declassified something and he honestly didn't. What is what is the public reaction response to that? Once again, I mean, if I found out Trump was selling our nuclear secrets to the Saudis to pay off his debt to Russian oligarchs, of course. I mean, he should have serious criminal punishment. But to say he declassified when he didn't, uh, but he had the documents in a box somewhere with golf clubs and all, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, that, that would, if we end up there, I would probably get on the radio and say, well, I mean, who didn't believe Trump is capable of doing something <laughs> like that? This box of documents behind my golf clubs included some information that was classified that I said I declassified. But I really didn't. <laughs> but I meant to. Yeah, but I meant to. I mean, that, that, that's Trump. I mean, that's it's really it's kind of the essence of beauty in Donald <laughs> Trump. I mean, it's why we like him so much, because he just seems like a real regular dude living a real regular um, sort of life. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I'm curious about something. So we, we, we talk a lot about uh classified information as it relates to trump and the president we know that the president has access and, and needs access to all kinds of uh i guess private and confidential and classified information all right you were county council person you were also elected to lieutenant governor and had to be prepared to be governor in the event that uh, you were moved into that oh, position. i was always prepared you right, know that right but here's my question to you w- were you ever having to deal with classified information Certainly not at the scale of, of national security, I guess, but at a state level, certainly you've had to have some, some experience in classified information. There were certain strategic assets in the state of South Carolina and a chain of command associated with defending. In other words, if there was a legitimate threat at one of those strategic assets in South Carolina, and yeah, I mean, the, the, but, but it was more about the chain of command. I mean, I was not in charge of anything. Uh, if, if the governor was out of state and um something was targeted a strategic asset in south carolina was targeted i mean i was simply a part of a chain of command in communicating with the proper authorities it was never a decision i had to make the only part i played was making sure the chain of command is intact and that information remains confidential in other words if there was um an attempt at a let's just say terrorism i mean if somebody tried a terrorist event at a strategic asset in south carolina and we reported, I mean, I, I, you know, the governor is intimately involved. If the governor's not there, then I take the place of the governor. Um, so, so, yeah, but it was never me deciding what to do or not to do. It was rather a part of a chain of command that makes sure correct and accurate information gets to those in charge of um, preserving or protecting some of these hmm. strategic assets. The other would have been executive sessions. I mean, when the Senate went in executive session, it was in confidence. I mean, it was... um. It was classified to some degree. It was not to be repeated, not to be discussed outside of the, the Senate chamber. Um, you know, there were no reporters. There were no guards. I mean, this is when the sergeant at arms left the room. I mean, it was the Senate and me. Every member of the Senate and me in that room together, hashing out some of this um, confidential information. Sometimes it's um, state-related. Sometimes it's employee-related. Sometimes it's interaction with the federal government. And I've never said a word to anybody about those um, seven or eight or nine executive sessions because I made a pledge and a commitment not to. And, um, you know, the media would want to know, uh, you know, and they, they would they would report this or report that, but you had to be, you know, tight-lipped about what you knew. And uh, once again, I was not a member of the Senate, 
but rather the presiding officer. So as a normal session of Senate operated, so did an executive session. So, so when, you know, someone like the president pro tem said, we're going to executive session, everybody left the room except the members of Senate and the Lieutenant governor. I mean, now the Lieutenant governor doesn't preside over the state Senate, but in my day it did. Mm. And those would have been, I don't know if they're classified, but they're very confidential in nature, not to be discussed outside of that chamber. Interesting. Let's, let's go to the phone. Yeah, John in Florence. Hello, John. Uh, good morning, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, mm, hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I haven't seen any quotes from you in the Coastal Observer lately, <laughs> but uh, the, um, along the lines of your your last thing, talking about the ladies standing on the beach or in the sun, or I found out Walmart has come out with a software program where it'll show different models for different sizes. So I guess you can. Pick anybody from the size of Twiggy all the way to Jabba the Hutt. But um, the uh, other thing is, in the election that we just had locally, wasn't there some sort of a uh, thing asking whether you would want to have a closed party system where we'd have Republicans vote in one primary and Democrats in another? And um, I hadn't heard anything about that but maybe maybe you have i've not heard the returns on those ballot questions i need to follow up on that john thank you for the call to appreciate it but yeah they're talking about open or closed primaries um the republican party is trying to uh and this is some of the uh, inside the i, I don't know rev the, the real insiders in the republican party would rather it be a closed primary um there were a lot of concern let's use the tom rice election as an example there were a lot of concerns in the fry campaign or camp that you know rice was going to engage a percentage of Democrats and Democrats would choose the Republican nominee. Um, they didn't want that. You know, I, I kind of talked myself into both ways of, of this argument. Uh, you know, should the Republican primary be closed? Should the Democrat primary be closed? Should a Democrat voter be allowed to vote in a Republican primary? Uh, for a long time, I said, why not? But but it seems to me that it's very, uh, it's organized now. And and certain candidates in certain states. A and strategy. Yes, yeah, so it's a good strategy but it's not to me the primaries are not elections they're selections the republican selects their nominee the democrat selects theirs take a break back in a minute just yesterday morning they let me know you were gone Suzanne, the plans they made put an end to you I walked out this morning and I wrote down this song I just can't remember who to send it to I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end seen lonely times when I could not find a friend But I always thought that I'd see you again Won't you look down upon me, Jesus You gotta help me make a stand You just got to see me through another day my body's aching and my time is at hand I won't make it any 
seen fire and I've seen rain Seen sunny days that I thought would never end Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. What are you? Better, better not tell James Taylor we played his music on this show. I don't huh. know that he lines up. But with he's us. a great songwriter. I'm mean, a great sure. songwriter sure. and a very um, cerebral singer, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, he's got a certain. Um, uh, he's not my favorite guy, but he puts me very much at ease. I mean, his music kind of sort of puts me very much at ease. Kind of interesting. I, um, I was walking around the tailgating Saturday for a minute. Didn't have it a minute. I'm um, actually meeting up with a friend. And, I mean, th- there are some people who tailgate that bring these big speakers. I mean, these huge speakers. And there should be some ordinance against that. Um, we, we all like certain ways we tailgate. I mean, you like to tailgate your way. I like to tailgate right. my way. But I don't want to be forced to listen to rap music you know, six parking spots away, about to blow yeah, my head off. Of course. Um, I can tell you this. If if law enforcement didn't address it and it happened near me, I would address it. I mean, I don't know exactly what I would do, but I would I would have some tra- strategy and I would um I'd figure out a way to make I mean <laughs> you, you put up your big speakers right, and I don't blast put up any big speakers. Taylor. I got one little small speaker that we carry and we play it as kind of background music, got a television, we're watching like this Saturday we'll watch the end of the Clemson game. They play at 12, um, and then we'll watch Florida and Tennessee. We'll have it on mute. We'll have a little bit of background music. We'll have some James Taylor, some Bob Dylan, um, some Old Crow Medicine Show, no Springsteen, yeah. but, but it'll be it'll be kind of a backdrop. You know what I mean? It'll be like a baseball game. I've told you before, we don't go to the baseball game to watch baseball. We go to the baseball game to talk to one another with baseball being the backdrop, <laughs> and, and the music at a tailgate is kind of the backdrop, but, but damn, it doesn't need to be. I mean, these people, I saw them taking out tripods and putting up speakers like they're roadies for Kiss. <laughs> and I, I don't want to park anywhere near that. Yeah. I mean, you can't hear yourself think. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, I, I think you got that right. But if you got time to play James Taylor, you can surely play uh, Jimi Hendrix cover of uh, All Along the Watchtower. We can do that. Like we can that. do that. That's a good one. And uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, and it, and if you want a little humor, maybe the 115th Dream or something like that. <laughs> but uh, they uh, the question I, I really is on my mind is two questions. One I think only you can answer, but the other one uh, maybe you or uh, Mr. Baker can answer either one. Is when is Mr. Haley going to be back on to give his prognox- prognostications? <laughs> And uh, the other thing is, uh, where do you predict the next stupid bomb will fall on this country? The next stupid bomb. Define stupid bomb. The stupid bomb is this idea that uh, that one of the many ideas that a man is the same thing as a woman and a woman (laughs) is the same thing as a man. You know, and and, uh, the other thing is that. We can get by without fossil fuels without going back to the Stone Age. We sure can. Thank mm-hmm. you, Mike. Appreciate that. So th- there's a lot to chew on. I'm trying to get Robert to come on at 8 o'clock Friday morning with our delegation. Oh, there you go. 
because I mean, I, I want them to hear what he has to say because they, they've asked me a lot about, you know, what is Robert saying? What does the polling say? What what does he think about Arizona? What does he think about, about Nevada? I'm optimistic. I mean, I, I really feel good about where this thing is headed. It, it looks to me like that the independents are beginning to decide. I mean, we're a little less than seven weeks away. I think, what, 48 days, if I'm not mistaken. So we'll wake up today, seven weeks from now, and we'll kind of sort of know exactly uh, who's in the majority. I mean, we may have some closely contested, have to wait. Uh, you know, won't be called that night, race too close to call, especially since um, the events of twenty of 2020 have left us a little bit more uncertain on the um, that night we go to bed. But But it just looks to me like, there's a rallying of independents around the Republican candidate in Arizona, in Nevada. I mean, I still don't buy New Hampshire. I still don't buy Washington. I still, but, but, but you know, Warnock, I think, is in trouble. I think, um, I think the Oz-Fetterman race is probably as interesting as any because they're both. It's easy to say Oz isn't what he says he is, and Fetterman is exactly what he says he is. I mean, that's kind of a, that's a contrast. And I, and I want to get Robert's take on um, on Pennsylvania. Robert has told me more than one time that Wisconsin, for some stupid reason, is almost impossible to poll. But a poll came out yesterday that had Johnson about two and a half points ahead. He's the incumbent. That's a hold. So they need to hold Wisconsin. They need to hold um, in Pennsylvania. No, excuse me. Hold in Wisconsin. Hold in Florida. Uh, a gain in Nevada, a gain in Arizona, a gain in Georgia. Now, but that, to me, those are the three most likely places that the Republicans gain. Now, Robert may disagree with me, and he would be a better source than I, but it looks to me like Laxalt's in a good place in Nevada, Masters, good place in Arizona, probably not as good as Laxalt for some reason. Um, Masters is a different candidate. I mean, he, he's a very quirky candidate. Uh, kind of a firebrand of the America First movement. Um, and then Herschel, I think you saw a poll yesterday that had Walker up 48.6. Warnock was about 46.2. I mean, obviously, that's within the margin of error. But the trend lines, and this is what you pay close attention to, the coalescing of voters. I mean, I'm talking uh, kind of as a former candidate, the lingo, uh, we're trending. I mean, I remember Robert telling me a lot about we're trending this way. We're now trending that way. after Labor Day, you way. always said don't pay much attention no, to Labor Day. No, but it's beginning to take shape now. I mean, it's, I mean, something stupid could happen. I'm talking about stupid bomb a second ago. I mean, something <laughs> crazy could happen. I mean, there could be some revelation in the campaign. Um, Herschel could say something that nobody imagined he would say. But I'll say, I mean, I, I don't know that we're – as expecting a politicians to not say something a little bit out of the norm as Trump has. I mean, Trump's normalized some of these things. I think there was a day in American politics prior to Trump that if Herschel said something outlandish, it's over. But but now, I mean, you say something outlandish, people say, well, I mean, you know, Trump said it, you know, or, or you know, Biden says these things, or uh, the, the, the voter is not offended by people who say outlandish things anymore. Uh I don't think that happened the moment Trump shows up, but I think Trump exposed that. I mean, I think the the, the social media, internet era, era, age and era made all of our lives a lot more raw, in your face. Um, I, I joke around, by the year 2030, every young person will have put a picture of themselves naked and, you know, it won't be any secrets any longer. I, I, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but you know where I'm, the point I'm trying to make, but... um. 
I just something tells me that they're the independents are trending the Republicans' way. And and the New York Times wrote an article a couple of weeks ago saying, could the polling be wrong again? Well, you know the polling's wrong because you pay for the polling. It's a little CYA. And I think when the when the when the independents begin, the number I saw interested in me, 65% of Americans oppose any candidate who supports the loan transference. The student debt forgiveness, which is basically student debt transference, 65% of independents. That's a big number. I mean, if I'm getting two every time you get one, I mean, I get four, you got two. I got eight, you got four. You know what I'm, I mean? It becomes a big, big number. And then I look at the Hispanic number. And I look at Nevada and I look at Arizona as the Hispanic being a crucial part of that vote. I just said earlier, if you look at the the, the financial analysis of America, there's not a data point that I find optimistic or positive or not a single one in in the election 48 days from now the majority of data points that i trust are more encouraging than discouraging now now once again it doesn't mean it's not like the financial state of america it's not all bad and no good i mean there's some i like some i don't like but but on, on the majority or at the majorities it looks to me like the independents are breaking toward the Republican, and it's after Labor Day. And so you still stand by the Republicans could end up with 52 in the Senate? I think they could end up with 53. I mean, my prediction is 52. I think I said yesterday, they could end up with 246 seat in the House. I think they probably end up with 235-ish. Maybe 240, but probably closer to 235. They could end up with 53 seats, but I think it's more than, more likely. I mean, they, they could end up with 54. That they're still, I mean, the the pollsters are calling the Pennsylvania race a lean to the Democrat. It's a toss up, but it's still a toss up. Wisconsin's a toss up. I think Johnson wins Wisconsin. I think Vance wins Ohio. But those are not pickups. I mean, those are holding serve. Rubio's going to win Florida. We're not talking about that much anymore, are we? Mm -hmm. Six weeks ago, that's all we heard. Rubio's in a dead heat in Florida. Rubio was never in trouble in Florida. DeSantis is not in trouble in Florida. I mean, look at the voter registrations. I mean, it's, it's you know, I think there are 1.2 million more Republicans in Florida than there was in 2020. I mean, it's the fastest growing state in America, and the majority of people moving to Florida are going to vote for the Republican. They aren't um, Southerners. They're, you know, people who have retired up north and moved down south, similar to what's happening in South Carolina. But but the data points, I mean, it's 70% Republican. I mean, of the, of the 35 or 40 data points that we need to pay attention to, uh, that, that create these trends and movements, I think it's about 70% favoring the Democrat. And I'm not a homer. You know better than that. I'm not a sunshine bumper and, and never will be. But but I'm a realist. And, and realistically, it looks to me like the, the Democrats are having uh, trouble relating to independents or convincing independents to give us a little longer and we can um, – we can change the course or chart a new course or or do some things that are in your best interest. I want to go back to the data points of the country because talking about stupid bomb. I think Mike said, where's the next stupid bomb? Um, I said a couple of weeks ago, and I'll stand by this comment, the majority of, I mean, we, we argued about girls and boys playing in their own sports and abortion and the 15-week ban, the federal legislation. I mean, all of those matter, guys. They, they really and truly do. I mean, we need to get good policy on abortion. We need to have sound policy on immigration. We need to understand that transgenderism is uh, very odd. And men should compete against men and women should compete against women and boys and girls should not compete 
um, integrated, but rather separate of one another. But the two things that concern me most, and I said it last week, and I'll say it again, is our energy policy and our debt. I'm not going to be cold if a boy beats a girl in a swimming meet. My, my dollars in my pocket are not going to be worth a lot less if a, um, if a transgender um, gets elected to the Senate in Ohio and out of that comes some strange policy that allows, you know, I mean, none of that fundamentally changes my life. I think it's, it speaks of, of moral decline and kind of a decadence within society that we need to be careful about and guard. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I mean, I think there are a lot of um, spiritual slash so cultural slash social issues that do matter to the fabric of a nation. But, but our energy policy will directly affect how we live our lives. Our debt will affect directly how we live uh, the majority of our lives. And here's what's interesting about the meeting today with the Fed Open Markets Committee, which sets the Fed rate. Um, we talked a little bit about it this morning, not as much as I anticipated, but I would expect a, a 75 basis point raise. That gets us a little better than three. We're at about 2.33, 2.34 as we speak. That gets us to a little north of three uh, percentage points, a uh, 3% interest rate on the Fed on the Fed fund rate. But I went back and looked. And here's what concerns me, but because I made a statement prior to the, uh, the hard break at the top of the last hour that the, the prosperity we've created in the last 12 or 13 years, I didn't use the word fake, but I'm insinuating that. I'm, I'm arguing that none of this is real. All of this is hocus pocus. All of this is made up. I'll just give you two quick data points and let you decide whatever you want to. So in 1980, the, the, the inflation rate was about 7.63, 7.7-ish. Um, for argument's sake, let's round up and say it was 8. So in 1980, the, the inflation rate was 8%. The interest rate was... Uh, I mean, it was really beginning to move up because Volcker was trying to attack inflation. Stick with me for a second. The Fed's balance sheet was about $1.1 trillion. I mean, they had done some quantitative easing to try, and now it was nothing like it is now because for 100 years, it was only a trillion dollars in new money printed. But but the Fed, I mean, I've got it graphed here. Uh, well, in 1981, it was $750, million, $750 billion. So it's never been north of a trillion dollars. But it's always hovered around a little less than a billion. They 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 didn't call it quantitative easing and tightening back in the day. That they would um they would extract liquidity. They would provide liquidity. That they're looking for sound monetary policy. That they want full employment. They want a two percent interest rate. That they want a certain GDP growth. I mean that that's what they're in charge of. You know, uh, establishing the monetary policy which is best for the U.S. economy. So we've got less than a billion. Excuse me, less than a trillion dollars on their balance sheet. We've got a um, an inflation rate of eight percent today. We have an inflation rate of eight percent, and we have about nine trillion dollars on the balance sheet of the Fed. So we've got nine times as much, a little better than nine times as much on the balance sheet of the Fed. We've got the exact same inflation rate and interest rates in the Volcker era to combat once again eight percent inflation was nineteen percent, and we're freaking out because we're going over three today. I mean, help me square that up. I mean, if, if Volcker, and Volcker was no fool, 
I mean, Volcker was, I mean, he gets a lot of credit for harnessing or controlling and, and getting America back on a path of manageable inflation. So you had a similar inflation rate. You had a much more advantageous Fed balance sheet. And Volcker still felt that 19% needed to be the interest rate to squelch inflation. We're to a place now where we've got $9 trillion on the balance sheet, and we're freaking out once again over a 3% Fed fund rate. We've distorted in such a phenomenal way wow. the realities of the... Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the explanation makes sense. Well, the why does not. Well, I mean, the, 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 we don't live in reality. We've escaped reality. The Fed and its activism has allowed us to escape financial reality. These are the data points that, that concern me and alarm me. I mean, I'm not talking about demographics. We can go down the road of demographics and eventual spending. And, you know, the, the I mean, we took in, let me get this straight. We took in about $4.05 trillion last year in revenue. We spent 6.82. I mean, we're not, we're going to do a little better this year. Not much, but a little bit better. Now we're paying off student debt and we're doing out the savings from, you know, not spending $2 trillion we didn't have. There's just, there, there's nothing here that's encouraging, Rev, that there's nothing about this to like. And we can whistle past the graveyard. We can make it up as we go. You can listen to CNBC and Bloomberg and the Sunshine Pumpers, Pimps, and Prostitutes. But the reality is we've got our ass in a crack. I mean, this entire nation has been financially irresponsible. I'm not saying you individually. I don't have any idea how your household is. But we as a country, we as a country have gotten ourselves in an unbelievably bad position and it's going to take some pain to get out of it. Are we willing to take the pain? Can we afford to take the pain? Every 200 basis points we raise in the Fed fund rate costs we the people, not the government. Where does the government get its money from? I mean, they, even they, they extract it from we the people. Even when the Fed, even when the Fed prints it, what is the guarantor of those Fed rates? I mean, that, the Fed money, that that fiat currency credit of thin out of thin air. It's we the people. I mean, you the taxpayer, me the taxpayer. So th th there's nothing about this model that is sustainable. And what we keep asking or, or we keep acting like there's a way to wiggle off the hook. This is not a 3-2 ball game and, and your closer pitched two consecutive nights so you got your second best reliever out there. You know, this isn't the Georgia-Carolina game where you just kind of run the wildcat and hope for the best. But this is a very, very serious matter. And when you look at it from an historical context, there's never been another nation on earth that calls itself or professes to be a superpower that has got itself in this sort of financial position. Russia was never an economic superpower. I mean, we knew that's a communist regime. We can argue whether China is or not. I don't have any idea. You don't trust their data. You don't trust Russia's data. I mean, I don't know that we trust our data. But but we know that we have $9 trillion in uh, on our balance sheet at the Federal Reserve, what we know that we're freaking out now, we're worried about destroying the economy, not because we're going to raise interest rates to 19% like we did in 80, but rather we're going to raise them north of 3%. We're still far below the historical average, Riff. I mean, look, you see the ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see the gyrations on the 62-year-old historical chart of the Fed fund yeah, rates. We're way low at the bottom. Yeah, I mean, we're, 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 but we had 12 years of 0% interest rates what where the Fed was quantitative ease after quantitative ease after I mean it's buying mortgage-backed securities, it's buying bonds, it's borrowing, it's basically a you know the the government appropriates the money, the Fed buys the debt. 
I mean, it just, it was like the wild, wild west of irresponsible spending. And we believe that none of this has consequence. And that's bizarre to me. That's absurd to me. And it's dangerous that we've gotten ourselves in this position. And I don't know who I trust to get us out. Because nobody's talking about, I mean, how many times has DeSantis talked about the debt? How many times did Trump talk about the debt? I mean, there, there are a couple of guys out there, a couple of Republicans in particular, that are talking about excessive spending and we better get our debt in our debt. I don't know how you do it now. I mean, it's almost like, how do you make this correction? I, I don't think, may, maybe that's why we're not talking about it. Because even the people that understand it from an economic and scholarly perspective admit there is no way out of this. I mean, there, there's absolutely well, no way. Talk about spending more. What Keep I mean, spending. That's the Democrats. But they, they ascribe to Keynesian economy and or a Keynesian economy and this modern monetary theory that is I mean, the absurdity of that. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a second. You know, a lot of folks are saying it's not what the Fed does today. It's what they say, what Jerome Powell, Fed chair, says. He'll speak and then he'll answer some questions at 2.30 after they, it's the Fed Open Markets Committee. They set the rate. They'll probably... I mean, 85% of um, people on Wall Street believe they're going to raise rates by 75 basis points. There's a few out there that still believe they're going to raise at 100 uh, basis points. The market, the futures are up about 147 a day. I'll just give an example, Rev. So we have a pandemic, and out of that comes struggles in business, uh, economic uncertainty. Uh, you know, just we've never experienced anything like that. And the market went up. I mean, the market increased in value to the middle of a pandemic. It doesn't, the news doesn't matter. I'll give you another example. So we have a good jobs report. When we have that good jobs report, you would expect the market to, to, to act accordingly. I mean, it, it would be, I mean, it would be reasonable to expect, okay, good jobs report means good economy. Good economy means good earnings. Good earnings means um, good investments. It doesn't work like that anymore. A good jobs report now means that the Fed is less inclined to be as activist. That they'll probably they'll probably not do as much quantitative easing. That they'll probably they'll even they might even think about raising the rates. It's all about the Fed. And I know people argue with me and say, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not all about the Fed. Guys, with Wall Street today, as far as I'm concerned, it's all about the Fed. Um now, now obviously companies like FedEx matter. I mean, when FedEx comes out with a negative report or excuse me, a bad report and and you know, changes their guidance or doesn't even give guidance. For the next quarters or so. Some of that's macro, some of it's micro. I mean, FedEx has some issues. Sunday delivery, rural delivery. I mean, some of those are inefficient costs or costs that they've got to work on. They've got to, but FedEx is a good reflection of where the economy is. FedEx doesn't just deliver for FedEx. They deliver for everybody in America. UPS, same thing. And they've seen somewhat of a sell-off in this. That to me is the fundamentals of the economy. I mean, that, that's what the economy should be predicated on, should be based on. When FedEx changes their guidance, that should freak everybody out. I mean, when FedEx says, hey, man, we didn't meet our, our revenue number. I think they did meet the revenue, just not the, the margin number. But, um, but our guidance, we think our guidance is so bad, we're going to take it off the table. I mean, we don't know what the next three quarters or two quarters or four quarters look like. Um, to me, that's when you got to strategize. But, but under normal finance conditions, when, when interest rates are at historic averages and the Fed doesn't have $9 trillion on its balance sheet, I think investors can make shrewd and smart and competent decisions. Today, it's all about the Fed. I mean, if a good jobs report comes out, that means the Fed will probably not do anything, so the market sells off. Why does the market sell off in a good jobs report? Because it's all about the Fed. 
and I've, I've debated this, and I, I'm not scholarly, and I'm not educated, and I don't understand the nuances of, of economic theories, but, but I do understand that, and I understand quantitative easing and zero percent interest rates have created a bubble, an asset bubble. Uh, somebody said, well, what's the biggest bubble? The bubble. I mean, I think we've got an asset bubble. And you asked me several times, so, so what is worst-case scenario? I mean, the worst-case scenario is the dollar implodes. I mean, you know, the, the destructing of the valuation of the dollar. Now, now, some of the euro markets, when you look at some of the euro currency markets, the dollar's not getting killed because people still trust the dollar more than they do anything else. So there's still a trustworthiness or a certain integrity the dollar has, a certain durability the dollar has that we're all benefiting from. But nothing's forever. At some point in time, the world will perceive America as not being responsible spenders. And, you know, I mean, the, the dollar, I don't know how much longer the dollar will be the preferred currency of the world. I don't have any idea what the answer to that is. But right now, the reason that they're holding their own is because everybody else is at least equally as goofed up as we are. And it's central planning. It's central bankers all over the world who've decided it's in their best political interest to not allow a recession. I mean, who wants to run for office being responsible for managing a recession? So let's delay it. How long? Forever. I mean, forever. Let's just make sure we never have another recession. When we do have what we've always argued is the technical definition of a recession, you know what the experts say? Well, this is a new normal. I mean, this is not, you know, I understand historically we've said two consecutive quarters of negative we're GDP growth. The definition. Yeah, we're going to change the definition. Why are you changing the definition? Because somebody may lose a political office. I mean, if we accept we're in a recession, that means your policies didn't work. If your policies didn't work, somebody might vote for somebody else. So we just changed the definition of the word. But the Fed, I mean, it's just it's bizarre to me how few people understand. If you walked up to Main Street America and said, you know what the Federal Reserve is? Two or three percent would say, yeah. The other 96 or 7 or 8 percent would probably say some government agency that I don't know what they do. I mean, you know, if you said, how about monetary policy? Uh, what is that? How about the Fed fund rate? What is that? How about the, uh, the balance sheet of the Fed? What is that? How about quantitative easing? What is that? Quantitative tightening? What is that? All of these things matter enormously in minding your life. You, you see, a lot of us believe because I don't work at Goldman and I don't work at J.P. Morgan and I'm not in the finance sector. None of this matters. It all matters because here's what could happen. You've asked me worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, the dollar loses its value. The dollar is not um, the dominant currency any longer. And it has a 40% decline in its value. And this is a hypothetical, but this is not unbelievably, um, I mean, th th this could happen. I mean, th do I think it'll happen? No. But could it happen? Would I be surprised if it did? No. If the dollar loses 40% of its value, then you're 40% less wealthy. If you're 40% less wealthy, how do you maintain a standard of living as you did when the dollar was? Let's say a dollar's worth a dollar's worth a dollar, and all of a sudden a dollar's worth 60 cents. How do you maintain that standard of living if the, if the currency of which you've, your, your life's investments are made in is worth 40% less? I don't think you can. Well, I, mean, I, I don't either. But, but when, when I look at the data points, that, that option has to be put on the table. The... the once again, right now, when you look at the European currency markets, it, it rewards the dollar for not being in. It doesn't reward the dollar for being in good shape. Nobody's saying, man, those Americans have it figured out. 
They're doing a hell of a job at their, you know, keeping their financial house in order. <laughs> no, it's, hey, at least they're not as bad as the Spaniards or as bad as the um, the Greeks. And and kind of the, um, it's not the shining city on a hill. It's the less dull city on a hill um, <laughs> or the, you know, not the most dull city on a hill. But, I mean, if, if, if the dollar were to, I mean, if the dollar loses its prestige and it's not in the demand it historically has been, and it loses 40% of its value, how do we maintain a standard of living that we've been accustomed to? I can tell you, we don't. We simply do not. And and I'm afraid that that option is becoming more and more and more and more likely. And when I watch CNBC and I hear the sunshine pumpers and the pimps and prostitutes complaining about you know a, uh, a Fed fund rate that may exceed 3%, I mean, they're, they're, you know, all of them have been geniuses. They've all become enormously wealthy. That They've all made unbelievable amounts of money on Wall Street, but it's not because they made wise investments. I mean, maybe they did make some wise investments, but the majority, it's hard to lose when the rules are like the rules are today. In a 0% interest rate environment, and the Fed, uh, as active as they've been in quantitative easing, it's hard not to make money investing. But is it real money? That's always the argument I've made. If you print money out of thin air and you inject it into the economy, knowing at some point in time you got to take it back out, is it ever been? Is that ever been real money? Let's go to the phone. Andy in Florence. Good morning, Andy. Good morning. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I just um, just besides myself with how our men have become so comfortable when you think about it. You're just basically hanging your own grandchildren and your own children in the future. Um, it's just, it's just, it just baffles me. Um, and, and I'll take it out there. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate that. I'll give you a number. So, I mean, we, and I'm, I'm being redundant, but numbers don't, numbers don't articulate well on the radio. I mean, it's hard to visually. I mean, it's kind of an easel and a, you know what I mean? And, I, and I'm, I'm power pointing and I got a pointer here and I'm showing you a laser pointer. There's the number, you know, too big. And there's another number, 1.4 trillion. I mean, th- those visuals help a lot understanding um, the subject at hand. But I'll give an example. We're spending, by the time the day ends today and the Fed fund rate is north of 3%, we're going to spend about a billion dollars a day in servicing our debt. One billion dollars every single day to pay the interest on our federal debt i mean that's a numbing number that i mean it's not alarming it's it's mind-boggling how do you do that i mean how does that become a reality not not a month not a week every day our debt service is going to exceed one billion dollars but but we're working on it we'll get it how do you get it in a better place that may be the reason, Rev, that no elected official is even having this conversation because they can't fathom what it's going to take to address it. That, that may be. I mean, you know, if I'm a politician and I want to get your vote and you say, hey, man, what are you going to do about this debt? And I really have to explain to you what we're going to have to do to get our debt back in order. I mean, it freaks you out, freaks me out, freaks everybody out. But it's where we are. And are we at the tipping part of the point of no return? I don't have any idea. But there's no example in human history of an economy this big having a debt this proportional to its GDP. I mean, we crossed 100% of GDP. I mean, we our GDP is, what, $25 trillion? We owe $31 trillion. I mean, it's not the, it's not the number. I mean, the number's staggering, no question. 
but it's the percentage of the GDP. We're not at war. I mean, we're funding some Ukrainians, we think. I mean, we hear that yeah. we're sending money over there. Or, we don't. Something. I mean, no, no accountability. Just, you know, here's another $12 billion. Send it over there to, to Ukraine. I mean, pay off another $100 billion worth of student debt, $500 billion, $300 billion, $300 trillion. The, the absurdity of our, the, the mindset that our political leadership has, the irresponsibility that they've allowed to be normalized, I mean, it, 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 it should freak all of us out, and it doesn't. It just absolutely, we kind of just, you know, uh, I don't You're know, You're freaking man. me out. Well, I mean, I, you know, what does the other side look like? Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, but the core of a lot of this is, is kind of a sentiment, and it really is psychological. I mean, it gets into human psychology and culture, and um, it's less finance. It's more about the, the matter of the heart, brain, body, and soul. Th- there was a day in America when it was okay to be told you couldn't have something. But I want a bigger house. Can't have it. I want a third car. Can't have it. Why can't I have it? Don't have enough money. And and we built this world or this this American experiment is all of a sudden centered around debt. But I want it. But but you can't afford it. But I you don't understand how bad I want it. So because I want it terribly bad, the the machine and apparatus in charge has decided. Okay, if 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 everybody wants a fifty thousand dollar SUV. Well, I mean, they're $80,000 now. Wow. I mean, if everybody wants an $80,000 SUV and society says everybody deserves it, then we got to figure out a way. And I think this, you know, housing bubble, the asset bubble, we're in a debt bubble. I mean, this is not, that, that's why I'm arguing this is going to be bigger than any we've ever dealt with. It's not about one sector of the economy. I mean, subprime lending and non-verified loans and, you know, um, asset appreciation out of control. But we knew, or we thought we knew, where we were going, Barney Frank said everything's fine, but but serious people knew that there were problems in the housing sector. But but I'm talking about a debt bubble. I mean a housing bubble, a, a tech bubble, a you know a um, a commodities bubble. This is a debt bubble, and I'm arguing that the majority of growth in our economy for the last 15 or 20 years has been fueled by debt. Rev wants a bigger home. Society and culture has agreed that Rev deserves a bigger home. But Rev can't afford a bigger home. So we make debt more available. We get more reckless and careless with our, you know, approving or not of debt. And and it's not about housing. It's not about tech. It's not about commodities. It's about everything. It's about debt. And, and I do think that's where it becomes a matter less financial and more about cultural and, and psychological. There was a day it was okay to say, Freehold, I know how hard you work and I know how bad you want that new SUV, but you ain't got enough money, dude. I mean, you just can't swing it. Here's what you can do, and here's what we're more than willing to help you with. But all of a sudden, instead of a four-year car payment, it's an eight-year car payment. Why? Because Freehold really wants that. And political leadership likes saying yes a lot better than saying no. Political leadership took on the role of Santa Claus. They felt it was their job to allow you to get everything you thought you deserved, whether you could afford it or not. I mean, in essence, that's, and that's where it becomes less financial and more psychological. And I think the, the smart and prudent matter is to say, hey, Freehold's a good dude. Rev's a good dude. Ken's a good dude. But there are limits. I mean, Dirty Harry said a man's got to know his limitations. The government basically argued that, yeah, he's got limitations, but, but he deserves it. He's entitled to it. How many times have we talked about the entitlement society? And that's really what we've morphed into and transitioned into um, – Rev wants it. Society says he's entitled to it. So some of the financial planners and, you know, um, masters of the universe 
has to figure out a way to make sure Griff can get, not what he can afford, but what he thinks he deserves or and what I he want says he deserves. You want it now. Of yeah. course you do. And um, I mean, that, that's <laughs> kind of the, and, and that's, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally understanding of it. I'm not sympathetic to it, but I certainly understand the mindset of, you know, you want something, you've worked hard, you feel like you're entitled to it, but you just can't afford it. We can't tell people they can't afford certain things. I mean, that that's not what America's about. America's the land of hope and dreams. I mean, he hopes and he dreams. So let's figure out a way to help him attain whatever it is he thinks he deserves, whether he can afford it or not. So the Fed meets at 2.30. We'll have a full report tomorrow. Enjoy your day. Talk again.